0: Everyone, welcome to the New Discourses Podcast. I'm James Lindsay, and we are going to solve, or I'm going to help you understand, I suppose, a mystery today. I get asked about this all the time. I've had to explain it about a million times, and it turns out that the explanation is not exactly easy. The question is, why can, under, under critical social justice or woke ideology, why can you be transgender, but you can't be trans race. Why is there, why are there transgender ideal identities? Why are they in fact celebrated, but why are there no trans racial identities? And in fact, when people, as we occasionally see, uh, often white women, um, who are trying to advance their careers, we often see the attempt to portray themselves as some racial minority. Uh and then they get absolutely burned for it. More than that, uh, we see occasionally somebody wade into this minefield and step on on a landmine, blow themselves up. Maybe most recently, uh, about a month and month and a half ago, as of this recording. So sometime in, in spring, I'll just say of of 2021 the evolutionary biologist and kind of famous atheist Richard Dawkins stepped on this landmine himself. He tweeted something about the issue. Why is there transgender but no trans race? Something, something discuss. And people went berserk. People went absolutely berserk. And it led to whatever it was that he had to he had he had done with this whole discussion of this issue led him to have some honor Humanist of the Year or something like this, revoked by all of these woke secular organizations that are going to have to virtue signal. But far more relevant than the Dawkins event of 2021 was the Rebecca Tuvel Hypatia Affair of maybe, was it 2017 or something like this. It was right before actually we did the Grievance Studies Affair because it's kind of funny because Hypatia, because of us and because of what happened with Rebecca Tuvel, which they were still undergoing the problems from when we did the Grievance Studies Affair and were submitting papers to him, Hypatia, which is the leading feminist philosophy journal, got hit with a double whammy of embarrassment. That um, I don't know. They seem to just be tweeting through it as they say. They seem to just be trucking on, but it really should have been a death blow to their reputation. And so what happened then was a feminist researcher named Rebecca Tuvel, who, as far as I understand, has her PhD from... Vanderbilt University, wrote a paper for Hypatia, which was accepted and subsequently published, I believe, that showed the arguments for transracial identities would philosophically perfectly parallel the arguments for transgender identities. And the editors, editorial board and reviewers of Hypatia decided to accept this, and then it was published and pandemonium broke out, uh, Tuvel was threatened. She even faced this very peculiar virtue signaling paradox, which is where people that she had worked with previously in her professional career, friends, etc., denounced her vigorously publicly while sending her notes of support privately, which is the most duplicitous disgusting thing ever. So she got blown up. Hypatia itself got blown up, the paper ends up getting retracted, the editorial board ends up being forced to resign, there's an entire turnover in their editorial board as a result of having stepped on the transracial identity landmine. So what's the deal? That's what we're going to try to parse today. This is probably going to be fairly long because I have to kind of explain to you a few different things about critical race theory and queer theory for you to understand. But the short answer is that critical race theory and queer theory which are the two relevant theories within critical social justice ideology more broadly think about oppression in the same way but in a very important respect they take the opposite approach on what you should do about it so helen pluckrose and i have frequently had to answer this question after publishing cynical theories and the answer we often give is that critical race theory and queer theory theorize identity differently. And it's not quite right. That's a very oversimplified expression. They actually theorize identity the same, but they theorize what to do about the identity or how to challenge the oppression associated with identity in opposite directions. And I'm going to try to make the case in this podcast that that's because the incentive structures that surrounded the two uh paradigms as they were developing led them to theorize in opposite directions Um, in short critical race theory believes that you have to disrupt dismantle and deconstruct racism before you can even start to deconstruct race so they see racism as something that's part of having having of having race imposed upon them and the race is being imposed upon them by the people who benefit from racism and because it's being imposed by people who benefit from it, not by people who are oppressed by it. They don't have any access to the right requisite power to deconstruct race itself. That's what the theory basically holds. Queer theory, on the other hand, believes that you disrupt, dismantle, and deconstruct cisheteronormativity, that's the key thing, by disrupting, dismantling, and deconstructing sex, gender, and sexuality as stable categories themselves. So they come at it from a very different approach. Basically, in critical race theory, you have to keep race the way that it is, at least at a superficial level, and within queer theory, you have to tear apart the foundations of sex, gender, and sexuality as stable categories in and of themselves. If we get to a deeper level down, and I don't want to complicate this from the outset so I won't go into it yet, you see what they're actually doing is basically the same thing but for reasons that I say come down to the incentive structures that in which the theories developed, they do this opposite, uh, attack of deconstruction with it. They do, they do the opposite thing. So in general, what we have then is we have kind of the same thing going on in both cases, but they're doing something different with it. The belief is that there's this relevant system of power that's being imposed it's white supremacy for critical race theory, it's cis-heteronormativity for queer theory, and that has to be resisted somehow and ultimately destroyed. And what the two approaches do differently is they theorize how that has to be done differently, because there are two potential approaches to deconstructing any system of power. So let's go into this briefly. Um, approach number one to deconstructing a system of power is to deconstruct the foundation of of that system of power itself. For example, deconstruct the idea of race to say race is socially constructed and it makes no sense. There's no such thing as race realism. And therefore, since there is no race, racism doesn't make sense. And so there shouldn't be any racism because it doesn't make any sense. Or to deconstruct sex, gender and sexuality or or to deconstruct class. If we were going to do this in kind of an economic class analysis, you could deconstruct the actual thing upon which power is said to be operating. And so the goal with that is to say that, you know, there's some kind of, 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 axis of power and that the, the foundation of that axis of power doesn't make any sense. And so the system of power built on it also doesn't make any sense. And therefore the system of power must fall apart because it's nonsensical. So, if, like I said, if race is wholly socially constructed and thus in no way real racism must be some kind of a fiction that plays out on the, on something it has to be, it's a system of power that plays out on a complete fiction that doesn't make any sense. So racism would just dissolve. That's approach number one, take apart the idea that is being used to assert a system of power. Now approach number two is different. Approach number two is to go after the system of power itself without trying to go after the underlying uh, system of categorization. And a good example of this would be kind of classical Marxist analysis. You can't actually just deconstruct class because you either have wealth or you don't. So they have to go after the idea of classism. They can't say that being wealthy or not being wealthy makes no sense. They can only say that it's grotesquely unfair. And so this is a second approach. So you can either go after the thing upon which the system of power is said to be based, or you can go after the um, system of power itself and those are two different approaches now you can use both of these at the same time or you could use just one or the other and what i'm basically saying is that queer theory generally goes after the uh, basis of the system of power primarily whereas critical race theory goes after the system of power itself and there are theoretical reasons for that And I will claim that those theoretical reasons follow the incentive structures in which these theories were developed and kind of give a more cynical and even, I guess, critical analysis of what's going on. Let me divert for a minute, though, and kind of give you an example of this. And this example will make sense why I've chosen it as we get further in. We'll go back to 1896 and the Supreme Court decision, Plessy versus Ferguson in which very famously one and only one Supreme Court Justice, John Marshall Harlan, dissented. Um, In that dissent, we're going to see both of these approaches kind of applied, not like he didn't separate them very neatly and tightly, but we're going to see that both of these approaches are applied to the idea of racism, at least at the institutional level. Uh, So this is probably because harlan was arguing as a constitutionalist or if you read his dissent it's very clear he's like it doesn't matter what anybody thinks it matters what the constitution says he says this over and over again so he believes in classical liberalism and you can also tell that there is this distinction for him because he's not ready to comprehend it's very visible in his dissent that he's not ready to comprehend full social equality but he's saying under the constitution that doesn't matter and he in fact does indicate that it might be possible eventually that social, full social equality between the races would be a a fact, although he struggles to conceive it. So what happened in the Plessy versus Ferguson situation, to very briefly summarize, was that a so-called octoroon, this is a word that probably you're not even allowed to say on a podcast anymore, named Homer Plessy. What's an octoroon? uh, An octoroon is somebody who was one-eighth black and seven eighths white. So he was one eighth, a half of a quarter black. And so Homer Plessy, one eighth black, boarded a whites only train car illegally by the law that stood in Louisiana, was convicted of having done so, appealed to the state court, which upheld his conviction and appealed up to the Supreme Court on the grounds that such segregation is unconstitutional. And in fact, he made both arguments and Harlan recognizes that he makes both arguments. That the race itself doesn't make any sense by virtue of the fact that he's mixed race. It's a completely incoherent concept in this case he's trying to argue, but also that the racism doesn't make any sense and that it violates the constitution. And so the U.S. Supreme Court in the uh, case of Plessy versus Ferguson went seven to one against Plessy. And John Harlan was the famous dissent, and it's really worth looking up and reading the entire dissent. It's not very long. Um, it's very interesting to read, and you can see that that Harlan, in fact, predicts the disasters of critical race theory without, of course, calling it any of that. You know, he says, you know, if we're going to uphold this kind of thing, I just see how this is going to create more discrimination, more strife, more division, more problems. Blah blah blah. And now we're seeing this play out from critical race theory, trying to make the same mistakes all over again. Um, So it's a very interesting descent to read, I think, in light of what's going on in the world today. But the long and short of what's going on with Plessy versus Ferguson is that it established a legal apparatus for segregation under the separate but equal clause. So Plessy versus Ferguson, you can just kind of bookmark in your head as separate but equal becomes legally justified and John Harlan famously dissented by writing quote the constitution is colorblind and neither knows nor tolerates classes among citizens so he's arguing that the constitution itself regardless of anybody's personal opinion is itself colorblind so the institution the system itself must be colorblind and we have to go with that and so he's implying that the law that distinguishes passengers by race at all which would uphold a separate but equal clause must be itself unconstitutional So we can read a little bit from this dissent. I think it's instructive uh, and it'll make more sense why as we go on. So here's part of what Harlan writes. In respect of civil rights common to all citizens, the constitution of the United States does not, I think, permit any public authority to know the race of those entitled to be protected in the enjoyment of such rights. Every true man has pride of race and under appropriate circumstances when the rights of others as equals before the law are not to be affected. It is his privilege to expect to express such pride and to take such action based upon it as to him seems proper. But I deny that any legislative body or judicial tribunal may have regard to the race of citizens when the civil rights of those citizens are involved. Indeed, such legislation as that here in question is inconsistent not only with the equality of rights which pertains to citizenship, national and state, but with the personal liberty enjoyed by everyone within the United States. So here's what he's saying in this part. He's attacking the idea that race has any, and of course this is something Plessy did as well. He's attacking the idea that race has any legal meaning whatsoever. And if he's right, then racism at the legal and institutional level also can't possibly make sense right so he's attacking the foundation of racism by attacking the idea that race has any legal and institutional meaning under the constitution of the united states Well, will acknowledge and i think it must be acknowledged in fact that harlan points out here as he does in other parts of his dissent, that at the social level maybe it's not so but the principle which could generalize stands pretty clearly at the legal and institutional level for Harlan in 1896, there's no justification whatsoever to understand race and uh, under the Constitution, and therefore we're not going to have we can't we can't endorse racism because race itself doesn't make sense in light of the Constitution. And that could, of course, be extended beyond. Uh, and I think that we largely have achieved that for most normal people who haven't imbibed too much critical race theory. So read a little bit more from him uh, to kind of point out that he does have this tension between the legal and social levels. He, he's, he writes also in this dissent, the white race deems itself to be the dominant race in this country. And so it is in prestige and achievements and education and wealth and in power. Remember, this is 1896. But this is where you know Harlan separates himself from the law. He writes, so I doubt not it will continue to be for all time if it remains true to its great heritage and holds fast to the principles of constitutional liberty. But in view of the Constitution and the eye of the law, there is in this country no superior, dominant, ruling class of citizens. There is no caste here. Our Constitution is colorblind and neither knows nor tolerates classes among its citizens. In respect of civil rights, all citizens are equal before the law. The humblest is the peer of the most powerful. The law regards man as man and takes no account of his surroundings or of his color when his civil rights as guaranteed by the supreme law of the land are involved. It is therefore to be regretted that this high tribunal, The final expository of the fundamental law of the land has reached the conclusion that it is competent for a state to regulate the enjoyment by citizens of their civil rights solely upon the basis of race. So he's saying and he just said that he thinks that white supremacy is a justified position at least at the social level, but not at the legal level, and that it'll probably continue to be this way. So Harlan, you know, can be taken as a man of his time. Harlan can be taken however you want to take him. But nevertheless, he also said in the previous excerpt, the constitution of the United States does not permit any public authority to know the race of those entitled to be protected in the enjoyment of such rights. So race itself, despite whatever his personal beliefs might be, is being challenged at the fundamental, institutional, and legal level. Race is being challenged to take apart racism. That's one of these approaches. Okay. And so later in the dissent, um, he actually shows the other side of this. So we'll read from that too. Rather than attacking just the legal meaning of race, he attacks the conceptual idea of racism. Conceptual idea of racism. Uh, revealing that there's a certain absurdity. Or abs- he's reducing to absurdum. Just as uh, Plessy did in his dissent. Uh, his case, he's going to reveal the absurdity in the law that makes racism seem completely untenable. And here's what he writes. There is a race so different from our own that we do not permit those belonging to it to become citizens of the United States. Persons belonging to it are, with few exceptions, absolutely excluded from our country. I allude to the Chinese race. Okay, so pause for a second for a little historical context. What he's talking about is actually the Chinese Exclusion Act. So the Chinese Exclusion Act prevented Chinese people, despite the fact that they were building these exact same railroads, especially in the Pacific, and that they were doing lots of work and labor for Americans and American companies virtually uh, for free. They were expressly excluded by the Chinese Exclusion Act from becoming citizens under all kinds of various pieces of the Chinese Exclusion Act, this led to what turns out to be the only attempted ethnic cleansing in the United States' history, uh, which is a pretty ugly thing in ethnic cleansing because anti-miscegenation laws and the prevention of bringing in Chinese women specifically uh, into the United States under the Act made it so that the Chinese were just going to have the Chinese that were here were just going to have to die out and not be able to, continue to make more Chinese people or Chinese heritage people. So this is the thing that he's talking about. So I'll just start again. There is a race so different from our own that we do not permit those belonging to it to become citizens of the United States. Persons belonging to it are with few exceptions, absolutely excluded from our country. I allude to the Chinese race. And so here's where he deconstructs the idea of racism. But, by the statute in question, a Chinaman can ride in the same passenger coach with white citizens of the United States, while citizens of the black race in Louisiana, many of whom perhaps risked their lives for the preservation of the Union, who are entitled by law to participate in the political control of the state and nation, who are not excluded by law or by reason of their race from public stations of any kind, and who have all the legal rights that belong to white citizens, are yet declared to be criminals, liable to imprisonment if they ride in a public coach occupied by citizens of the white race. Okay, so did you catch what just what, what just went down there? He says the United States is very openly, very systemically being racist against Chinese people. But Chinese people, under this racism law, can ride with white people in the car, whereas black people cannot, even though black people are full citizens of the United States, etc. And so he's pointing out that, that the racism involved in the statute makes no sense. He's deconstructing the racism here rather than the concept of race. So he's this is the other side of that argument. You can see how they both are taking place here. And he's not leaning into the mixed race heritage, which is a very fruitful site for this kind of argument also of Homer Plessy. He's talking about even at a higher level of principle. So he carries on in the dissent, it's scarcely just to say that a colored citizen should not object to occupying a public coach assigned to his own race. He does not object or perhaps would he object to separate coaches for his race if his rights under the law were recognized, but he does object and he ought never to cease objecting that citizens of the white and black races can be adjudged criminals because they sit or claim the right to sit in the same public coach on a public highway. Heavy stuff going on in 1896. So here, Justice Harlan is not arguing about whether or not race exists before the law. In fact, he's acknowledging that with the Chinese Exclusion Act, that it does in continued defiance of its own, of the constitution's own principles, which he just articulated. And these of course, what makes the Chinese race so different? Cultural reasons. Of course, the Chinese are culturally so different. We can't even understand them that we can't possibly include them as citizens. So he's indicating that race is in fact being reified by the law and then he shows that this fact combined with the others relevant to the case, the statute in question, render the racism that proceeds absolutely nonsensical. He's revealing that there's an absurdity here, a contradiction here in the idea of racism. So this shows that there are two approaches, two fundamental approaches. Plessy argued them himself in this case and the famous dissent of John Harlan also acknowledges them. There are two fundamental approaches to taking on a system of power, and one or both of these might be in operation at any given time. Plessy and Harlan both use both of them. And those are to deconstruct the basis upon which the system of power rests, like race, sex, gender, sexuality, class, etc., render it meaningless, legally, socially, and so on, And the second is do not necessarily deign to deconstruct the basis upon which that system rests and instead reveal the injustice produced. Along the lines of its legal, social, and so-called, so forth, uh, stratification, and show that those are nonsensical, that they are themselves contradictory, that they have, that they don't make sense in and of themselves. Which is to say, to go after the power dynamic, either in terms of its injustice or its inconsistency or its incoherence or whatever, without necessarily going after the underlying basis for it. And of course, as I said, Plessy and Harlan both show here that both can be happening simultaneously, sequentially, or even strategically, as he obviously vacillates between them in his own descent. And Plessy used both being that he was of seven-eighths white mixed race to say this doesn't even make sense, like that I can be, ex- I should be excluded from this car based on being one-eighth black. So what's going on we get some insight from this about what's going on that allows people to be transgender but not trans race is because of queer theory and critical gender theory before it and critical race theory approach the issue of systemic power differently by design. Queer theory goes after both of these factors at once. They say that it's unjust the way that people excluded by the cis heteronormative structure of society are treated, they're harmed, etc. But they also say that the categories themselves don't make any sense, sex, gender, and sexuality are fluid. Or they're not even real, they're socially constructed. Well, critical race theory does not go after both. It only goes after the system of power. It does so by acknowledging and leveraging the idea that race is socially constructed, therefore that it isn't technically coherent anyway. So it kind of plays both sides of the argument, but it only actually uses one side, whereas queer theory uses both sides. And in particular, queer theory actually tries to deconstruct the foundations as one of its core objectives, as we'll see. So, Just to reiterate, those differences and approaches have reasons for them. We can say all that we want to say about theory and all we want to say about how how people think and how people organize information that we want. But the fact of the matter is that people devise especially very griftable self-serving theories like critical social justice theory in alignment with the incentives and the conditions in which those theories arise social theories like this aren't attendant to reality they're attendant to power therefore they're attendant to the incentive structures that people who want to steal and claim power are going to follow and so frankly just to lay it out there and i'll back this up at the end of this podcast critical race theory wanted to maintain special interest programs like affirmative action this is where it came from critical race theory didn't just want to it arose in the with the aim to maintain special interest programs like affirmative action and identity politics Uh, to achieve things like affirmative action, and those require race to be considered real enough for such policies to make any sense. This leads them to affirm or at least accept some solidity to racial categories and then to police their boundaries because you can't give everybody the grift. So you can't be transracial under critical race theory because that would bust up their grift. Anybody could just identify as black and start to claim to get special treatment queer theory had a different set of incentives because it came from a different place. It wasn't trying to benefit from something like affirmative action. It wanted to liberate gender and sexual minorities from the constraints of biology so that they could, to be generous, live their lives and their sex lives without any possibility for judgment. This leads them to to deny the stability of the category of sex, gender, and sexuality completely because they don't have any particular value or use for the queer theorists. They do for feminists where queer theory came from, but that's a, that. We'll, we'll cover that. They don't have any particular use for queer theorists who want to have complete sexual and gender liberation for a variety of their own incentives, which include obtaining power, manipulating the situation, but also very frankly, because it's rooted in a lot of sexual kink. So under queer theory, you can and should be transgender, gender nonconforming, non-binary, any of 1619 made up genders, whatever you want, any of 1619 more made up sexualities, whatever you want and very queer as such under queer theory, because that enables their kinks. The more the merrier at the orgy, I guess. So these are very different incentive structures. And there are theoretical reasons that follow from these incentive structure differences. Um, And I think they largely amount to window dressing and rationalization for the underlying incentive structures that the theories are trying to exploit. And as I'll articulate by the end, I think it has to do a lot with not the relatively good faith participants in these theories who think that they're just trying to open things up, but rather the fact that these theories will end up being driven by the most psychopathic people who start participating in them, the people who are going to exploit the power that they can gain by chasing these theories along these incentive lines the furthest are going to actually set the dictates, they're going to set the vanguard, which is a word I use very intentionally here, of where these theories are going, and like I said, it will be the least mentally well the most cluster B personality disorder, the most psychopathic people will set the, the trend for the direction that these theories go. And then you have all of these other fairly good faith, sincere theorists who have completely wrong ideas about reality, who are going to then launder that into uh, being acceptable under say scholarship or even socially acceptable or end up on the news or in, in academic journals or whatever. So in some sense, then critical race theory and queer theory slash critical gender theory are pretty different, but just to, this is, it's, it remains complicated, they're also remarkably similar once you get under the hood and ignore the pressures that they're trying to rationalize with those impose, opposing incentive structures. So both of these two theories, critical race theory and queer theory, theorize some things in ways that are similar if not operationally identical But the outcome is different because the incentive structures and what people should do with the theories therefore comes out different. So they understand gender and they understand, or sex if you want, uh, and they understand race in a different way. And I contend that the reason is because the theories grew up in incentive environments that led them to do this, and it could have gone the other way. So the goal in this podcast then will be to draw these ideas out in a way where it becomes much more clear That while critical race theory and critical gender and queer theory theorize their identity categories in some sense very differently on the surface, which is what people experience and get confused by, so you can be transgender but not trans race, it is comprehensible also as a single way to think about the oppressor-oppressed dynamic, but with different applications. So that's where we're going to try to go. I'm sorry it's confusing, but I want to get it right. Um, As a matter of fact, this is my second attempt at doing this podcast because the first time I recorded it. I was not happy with what came out. Um, I did not feel like I made it clear. I felt like I muddied the water more even for myself. So summarize real quickly, um, with critical race theory, let's get into what I have to do is to summarize these two theories a little bit so you can understand why they think differently. And then we can get to the incentive structures and you'll understand really why they think differently. So let's, let's do critical race theory first. Um, Critical race theory is in quick summary views race as something that has been imposed by the white people in a white supremacist society. So white people who are outside of the reach of the power that's rem- that's left remaining to racial minorities, create and maintain race and racism, whether people of color like it or not. And that's the key there is that the power to, to create and police and enforce racial categories is locked up in whiteness and it is not given to the people who are oppressed by it. This is going to be a key idea here. Critical race theory believes that white people invented race, particularly as a political category for this exact purpose, to separate and create white supremacy, which is 400 years ago true, or maybe even 200 years ago true. Um, You can already see it falling apart by 1896 with Justice Harlan. Critical race theory believes that white people benefit from the state of affairs and are therefore maintained the state of affairs to their own benefit whether that's in willful ignorance that they don't know and don't want to know or whether that's because they cynically are manipulating the situation this is the for example the doctrine of white complicity where we have people like Barbara Applebaum who wrote kind of the book on the subject in 2010 arguing that all white people are racist or they are complicit in racism which is tantamount to the same thing because for the because they can't renounce the benefits of white privilege they gain these benefits by virtue of their skin color, so they can't renounce them. And so she says that where it comes to things like white privilege and complicity, being and doing are the same thing. Whiteness, being and doing are the same thing. What you, who you happen to be as a white person and what you happen to do are actually fundamentally intertwined for people in critical race theory. And so the part that we're not supposed to acknowledge, of course, is that critical race theory doesn't actually want to lose the race-based grifts that arose primarily in the 1960s under which these theorists came to power. They, in fact, want to increase those. And we will see that I'm not exaggerating this, but of, of note, let's stick kind of tight to the, to the purpose here and not get di- diverted into what I'm coming to later. Um, Of note, and this will make sense more later, race is not seen so much as performed in critical race theory as it is seen as being imposed. It can be claimed, especially culturally, as a marker of identity, but that's because it is being imposed by this system that's that's maintained by one race and one race only. So this is where we come up with the idea of double consciousness, which W.E.B. Du Bois wrote about beginning of the 20th century, um, arguing that uh, black people have a double consciousness. They know what it's like to be uh, black. They understand blackness, but they also understand what it means to have to be black in a white supremacist society. So they have this double consciousness of both whiteness and a white society and the operation of white society, but also of what it means to be black within that society and to have blackness as a distinct other thing. In fact, the basis for Du Bois, who um, had studied in Germany, he had studied with, in Germany, with some of the same people who went on to form the Nazi party, but he studied particularly the philosophy of Herder. And this is a very folkish kind of ide- ideology. That's why he came back and wrote the book called The Souls of Black Folks. That folks is not an, a mistake. It's got an F on the, on the title, folks, but it should, might as well just have a V. Because the German idea of folk as a people is intrinsic to his idea of blackness. That blackness has a set of cultural markers that form a folk identity, and this is literally the same ideology that, that Du Bois' own teacher went on to inspire. Uh, that went on to inspire Hitler. So, good stuff there. This folkish identity politics thing not so good but he's anyway claiming there's this double consciousness so race isn't being isn't so much performed as it's being imposed and black people under these doctrines actually have a full awareness of this imposition and to the degree that if where they do have to perform to fit into society that they are performing that they're acting white So because of this, according to critical race theory, the imposition of race can only be deconstructed from a position of power and privilege. This is their critique of postmodernism, as a matter of fact, and of liberalism. If you are in a position of racial oppression, according to critical race theory, you don't have what it takes to be able to deconstruct race. You are not given that authority. You don't have that power. And so all you can do is try to deconstruct racism. This is where Kimberly Crenshaw and the other early critical race theorists launched their criticism of postmodernism by calling it a vulgar constructionist thesis, which was created by privileged white men like Jacques Derrida and uh, Michel Foucault, who being white and benefiting from white privilege, therefore didn't understand the properly basic experience of of being oppressed, the lived experience, the lived reality of being black in a white supremacist superstructure, and who therefore failed to account how power dynamics really work. So she criticizes postmodernism as being very useful, but falling short because its constructionism is too vulgar. That's her word. I'll go ahead and read to you from Mapping the Margins, Crenshaw's very influential 1991 paper. I did a Series where I did the introduction and conclusion of this paper here on the New Discourses podcast before, so you can go look that up. Um, I'm actually reading stuff that I've read before then. This is actually from the conclusion section of the paper. What she writes here is one version of anti essentialism embodying white, what might be called the vulgarized social construction thesis is that since all categories are socially constructed, there's no such thing as, say, blacks or women, and thus it makes no sense to continue reproducing those categories by organizing around them. Even the Supreme Court has gotten into this act. In Metro Broadcasting Inc. v. FCC, the court conservatives in rhetoric that oozes vulgar constructionist smugness proclaimed that any set aside designed to increase the voices of minorities on the airwaves was itself based on a racist assumption that skin color is in some way connected to the likely content of one's broadcast. So you see her criticizing the vulgar constructionism here, both in liberalism and postmodernism. You also see her saying why she's doing it. Any set aside designed to increase the voices of minorities. Affirmative action. She's trying to defend affirmative action. And she's saying deconstructing race is inappropriate here. We actually need to maintain race so that we can maintain that. How do I know that's what she says? Because the next paragraph continues. But to say that a category such as race or gender is socially constructed is not to say that that category has no significance in our world. On the contrary, a large and continuing project for subordinated people and indeed one of the projects for which postmodern theories have been very helpful is thinking about the way power has clustered around certain categories and is exercised against others. This project attempts to unveil the processes of subordination and the various ways those processes are experienced by people who are subordinated and people who are privileged by them. It is then a project that presumes that that, that categories have meaning and consequences. And this project's most pressing problem in many if not most cases, is the existence of the category is not the existence of the categories, but rather the particular values attached to them and the way those values foster and create social hierarchies. So, as I was saying, and you can feel those two prongs of Justice Harlan's point here, can't you? They're there. Exactly what I just said about the descent from Plessy versus Ferguson appears here. As a matter of fact, we're going to see that Crenshaw cites exactly that dissent, uh, or exactly that case. I don't think she cites the dissent. Um, So you can see here how she's saying that the social constructivist critique of race, that race has no meaning, so therefore the racism makes no sense, has serious shortcomings that ignore the alleged lived realities of privilege and oppression. But you can also see that she said why she's saying it, because there have to be set-asides those set-asides are not going to be available if we get rid of that. You can see her motivation. The next paragraph in Mapping the Margins is her famous I am black versus I am a person who happens to be black distinction, which I've discussed many times. Um, so I'm not going to reread the whole thing here at the moment, although I think I do again later in the podcast. I've got it all, all these notes. Um, she writes here i am a person who happens to be black on the other hand achieves a self-identification by straining for a certain universality in effect i am first a person and for a a concomitant dismissal of the imposed category black as contingent circumstantial non-determinant so what she's saying is that critical race theory begins from the assumption and this is why i've introduced this part here not only that blackness is a state of resistance and a positive discourse of self-identification, that's the previous sentence, by the way, but also that it is imposed and determinant on the lives of those upon whom it's imposed. And because it is imposed and determinant, they don't have the power to be able to disrupt it from within. And like I said, you know, we saw the set-asides thing, but she gives away the game in her next paragraph. This is where she actually talks about Plessy versus Ferguson. She writes, Vulgar constructionism thus distorts the possibilities for meaningful identity politics by conflating at least two separate but closely linked manifestations of power. Before we finish the paragraph, let's just do that again, because that's where the game is given away. Vulgar constructionism thus distorts the possibilities for meaningful identity politics. That's the goal. Meaningful identity politics, where those set-asides are going to be maintained. As I said, the incentive structures of the theories explain why at the very bottom, why you can be transgender, but not trans race. So to carry on with Crenshaw, she says, you know, distorts the possibilities for meaningful identity politics by conflating at least two separate, but closely linked manifestations of power. One is the power exercised simply through the process of categorization, as I was saying, The other, the power to cause that categorization to have social and material consequences, which is why it's racist for them when they put meaning into social categories exactly like they're doing. While the former power facilitates the latter, the political implications of challenging one over the other matter greatly. So she's going to say this is how critical race theory is going to proceed. She says we can look at the debates over racial subordination throughout history and see that in each instance, there is a possibility of challenging either the construction of identity or the system of subordination based on that identity. Consider, for example, the segregation system in the Plessy versus Ferguson in Plessy versus Ferguson. At issue were multiple dimensions of domination, including categorization, the sign of race, and the subordination of those so labeled. There were at least two targets for Plessy to challenge, the construction of identity, what is a black, remember he was mixed race, and the system of subordination based on that identity. Can blacks and whites sit together on a train? So Crenshaw is doing a very good job of organizing that information right here, by the way. Plessy actually made both arguments, one against the coherence of race as a category, the other against the subordination of those deemed to be black, In his attack on the former, Plessy argued that the segregation statute's application to him, given his mixed-race status, was inappropriate. The court refused to see this as an attack on the coherence of the race system and instead responded in a way that simply reproduced the black-white dichotomy that Plessy was challenging, namely separate but equal. As we know, Plessy's challenge to the segregation system was not successful either. Well, this is where Harlan's dissent becomes interesting because Harlan went even further in kind of taking apart the system, as we saw with his his argument about the Chinese race. And uh, that dissent set a ton of precedent that made a lot of difference over time. And of course, our cynical theory of critical race theory here, cynical racism theory here, um, doesn't acknowledge that. You know, while the Supreme Court upheld separate but equal and thus racism and segregation, in that decision overall, the seed for breaking the thing down was laid down by Justice Harlan at the time. But the point that I wanted to say, where she gave away the game, is that her objective is to establish a meaningful identity politics in which those special set asides for voices of color can be maintained, the incentive structures shine through. And she's using this whole paper to argue that, that paying attention to identity in that way, intersectionality, at least through a partial ident- identification with the identity categories, especially race, is necessary. This is where that last sent- last couple sentences, the court refused to see this as an attack on the coherence of the race system uh, and instead responded in a way that simply reproduced the black-white dichotomy that Plessy was challenging. And so that's where we're seeing that she's, what she's saying is, oh, going after race as a coherent concept fails. It doesn't work in a white supremacist system. So critical race theory is not going to go that direction. It's going instead to attack the system itself, the system of racism, and it will use the other, the socially constructed aspect where it can, but because ultimately that would melt down their grift as well. They're not going to go really into that. I know it's a cynical analysis, but sometimes it fits. Um, so in summary, for critical race theory, race is said to be imposed with white as default and good. So the expectation is to be or to act white as reflected in, in say, the existence of W.E.B. Du Bois's uh, double consciousness idea. Critical race theory says that this imposition must be resisted, and it is best resisted by accepting... The fact of its imposition, not the imposition itself, but the fact of its imposition in asserting uh, blackness positively to disrupt the white cultural default. In fact, this is going to be done by establishing blackness as different. Black is beautiful. Crenshaw mentions that. That's a black nationalist and black separatist slogan. uh, uh, Blackness is going to be asserted as different than whiteness. This is, of course, a cultural thing and then arranging identity politics accordingly, because that's what's really going on. In general, the effort here is to disrupt the oppressive state of affairs, or the so-called oppressive state of affairs, such that whoever is othered by the power and play gets to have special rules for themselves. And that's identical to what's going to happen under queer theory with, um, with being oppressed by cis-heteronormativity. The key idea here, or ideas here, I guess, are that the operation of the relevant superstructure, which is white supremacy for critical race theory, and the incentive structure for creating identity, political blocks, and opportunities for special treatment and grift, both of those things have to be recognized to understand why critical race theory operates the way that it does. It basically wants to create special opportunities for power and grift for certain races and not others. It wants to reverse discrimination uh, discrimination so that it can... Um, make up for historical injustices as it were. So now we'll turn our attention to the foundations of critical gender theory and queer theory, which this is unfortunately complicated. I'm going to try to not overdo this, but there's going to be a lot here. Um, I haven't spoken or even written a lot about critical gender theory or queer theory yet, or the feminism from which they come. There are two chapters dedicated to these ideas in cynical theories, chapters four and six which are queer theory and feminism and women uh, gender studies, respectively, and they give you some background. A lot of what I have to say on the matter comes from that, although I have done subsequent further reading. It's a lot to cover, though, because we have gender theory and queer theory, which aren't the same thing, but they're related. In fact, queer theory evolved out of as an offshoot to critical gender theory, which in turn evolved out of radical and Marxist feminisms. So you have this kind of like evolution of thought from radical and Marxist feminism, just to oversimplify, into critical gender theory, which is going to hold that gender is wholly socially constructed, but biological sex is not, and then into queer theory, which throws it all up for grabs. So it's best to think of critical gender theory as a subdomain of thought that's highly consistent with an integral to the feminism from which it came. All waves, first, second, third, fourth, however many there are, I reject the linear wave hypothesis and say that there there are no waves. Still consistent. Critical gender theory is consistent with all of the uh, waves of feminism, but then they lost control of this because social constructivism would demand it as it went into queer theory, which then turned their social constructivist thesis further than feminism could possibly allow is because it starts to deconstruct sex. And when you don't have sex, you don't have feminism anymore. Biological sex is necessary. You have to have a stable and coherent concept of woman in order to advocate on behalf of women. So queer theory goes a step further and obliterates this. In other words, it shifts from the idea of patriarchy to cisheteropatriarchy to cisheteronormativity. That set of shifts takes you from feminism to uh, critical gender studies or theory to queer theory. So much of feminism, all of gender, critical gender theory and all of queer theory, all believe in a common. It believe in common that gender identity, is socially constructed and imposed upon people by some kind of cis-heteronormative, depending on where we are in history, superstructure in society or cis-heteropatriarchal superstructure in society that demands that men be men, masculine in particular ways, often referred to as hegemonic masculinity, and that women be women, feminine, feminine in particular ways, often called hegemonic femininity, and that both be straight at least most of the time usually in fact normally with normal being a double meaning of usual and expected and enforced socially as a matter of fact under that expectation and this link to sexuality just by the way is kind of key to how the theory developed because a lot of the radical feminists who were developing critical gender theory were and are in fact lesbians and frequently especially in the past many of them were butch lesbians who got very curious about gender in the first place because they don't match the typical hegemonic femininity that they were criticizing. They don't particularly like being told that being girly or feminine is integral to what it means to be a woman. And meanwhile, since they're radical feminists, they weren't particularly happy with how men and masculinity operate either. So they're going to criticize that gender as well. So gender theory grows out of this. So the sexuality dimension then becomes implicated because what does sexuality have to do with this? Why, you know, what does it have to, you know, how to, it's impossible to think about the questions of say lesbian relationships, especially where one, but not both partners is butch and not start thinking that sexuality and gender and gender roles, you know, the old trope, you're not allowed to say, which one of you is the man, which one's the woman like you. that is one inch underneath the surface, no matter what, if you're digging into this. So sexuality is getting implicated as well, uh, within critical gender studies and theory. So within the feminism from which it grew. Uh, but at the same time, this, the sexuality thing isn't, it's integral, but it's also tangential because critical gender theory is really designed around the idea that criticizing the ways in which usually straight, which is cis hetero patriarchy imposes a correct way to be a woman upon women. And then by extension, a correct way to be men upon men with the assumption that most are usually straight. Like I said, most of this analysis actually arises from Marxist feminism, so you have that oppressor versus oppressed conflict theory at the heart, and radical feminism that wants to tear up at the roots what that means, that's going to graft itself onto neo-Marxist or uh, critical theory very well, neo-Marxist thinking and critical theory very well. Um, both of these held that the creation of the social category of woman is integral to the way in which a patriarchal society controls and regulates women womanhood, thus women, and it is then said to also regulate and control male, uh, maleness and masculinity. And all of this is happening for reasons that, because it's ultimately deriving from Marxism, from something that has to do with masculinist, patriarchal, capitalist reasons. So this is kind of where it comes from gender critical feminists then created critical gender theory to try to break the link completely between biological sex which they wanted to retain as feminists and gender especially for women but also to criticize masculinity as tending to be toxic and dangerous and socially constructed and therefore more arbitrary and fluid and needing to be broken down so you already see this idea that we have to break down what it actually means to be womanly what it break down what it actually means to be manly and that's setting the stage for breaking down what it means to be a woman at all, or a man at all. And their objective was going to be to use social constructivism, which, by the way, is where you're now going to have postmodernism get taken up very eagerly by these people, because it takes its its social constructivist critique to the furthest level possible. These people are ripe for the picking, and why do you think they imported postmodernism so eagerly? Why do you think that so many of the original early postmodern writers were people in English departments who were often feminists? Not always, but often outside of the original, you know, French theorists. Why do you think that's the case? Because social constructivism is going to graft onto this extremely well. And I think we could make a case that the postmodernists were so socially constructivist, partly because they were kinksters. Lots of them were kinksters and they wanted to question the norms of society that were preventing them from being able to be kinkier. All these things, there's a sexuality, there's a gender, there's a sex, but what the gender critical feminists wanted to be able to do was claim that while sex is biological, gender is a social construction that is imposed and performed. And then now we have a very performative theory in terms of how things go. And this is thanks to Judith Butler, uh, in the, in a very specific sense. And so just to take a quick sidebar into, uh, performativity, I'm about to talk about Judith Butler more, but, um, what what did Judith Butler mean by gender performativity? So she borrowed this idea from another guy, JL Austin, and JL Austin had this theory of performativity that basically people in social roles become, at least under social understanding, avatars of those roles by performing in particular ways. So what are some examples? A judge, for example, becomes judicial by speaking in certain ways, dressing in certain ways, carrying himself and comporting himself in his professional capacity in certain ways. So he says things that sound judgely. He pronounces things in a judgely way. He carries himself and dresses in particular ways. So there's a performance around being a judge that makes you in in truth, or especially in particular in, per, in uh, public perception, to be a judge and that you learn those performances. It's not the same as performing and acting. Okay. And you could say the same thing with police, that police have a certain manner and a certain vibe and that what Austin was saying is that they perform those roles in order to convey the to the public that I am this thing. Um, this goes some distance to you know people using all the, the buzzwords and the jargon and everything else or addressing in certain ways, the so-called philosophers with the patches on their shoulders to convey through symbols and signals and action and activity that they are in a particular social role. And Judith Butler saw this concept, which has some validity to it and was like, aha, that's how gender works, which probably has almost no validity to it. That men act, man I mean, maybe a little bit, a tiny bit. Men act manly on purpose to be more manly. Women act womanly on purpose to look more womanly, to signal maybe sexual fitness or something like this. And then she takes this idea all the way to the full extreme, all the way to the full extreme, say, no, that, all that gender is, is these sets of performances. And we learn them from the social environment that we're in, we're socialized into them, and thus we reproduce them. And by reproducing them, we not only, they're not only inscribed upon society, they then get reinscribed by people continuing to participate in them. And so basically she's seeing human beings as a very blank slate and by being conditioned by society to believe that you're male and that you're going to have to act in certain ways to be male, and you're going to signal to people that you're male by acting in those ways, that you're going to perform maleness and you're going to inscribe and reinscribe maleness in society. Same thing with femaleness. And that she says that this is bogus and probably butch lesbianism is why it's bogus, I've Obviously, and so um, Judith Butler has a lot to to do with this, but well, she's also a fairy godmother of queer theory, and she decided, as I will make the case in a subsequent podcast as well, but also certainly here, that there's no breaks on social constructivism, and there's no breaks on critical theory. Both neither one of these things have breaks. There's no breaks to put it in other words on the dialectic. The dialectic must progress. And so you can't stop halfway. The gender critical feminists, in their hubris, brought social constructivism to an extreme level that nevertheless tried to retain a status quo of biological sex being biological and not a social construction. And gender, though, completely socially constructed. That's that's their untenable position. That's I argue, I'm sorry, gender critical feminists, I know you want it to be a tenable position. It's not a tenable position. First of all, it's not even true. Gender and sex are overwhelmingly correlated, not just for social reasons. That mating thing is probably pretty deeply wired, by the way. It's not really arbitrary. But more importantly, it's not a tenable position because it's subject to the exact same deconstruction. Social constructivism is going to look at you and say, you didn't go all the way. You're still problematic, turf. And that's what they are doing. That's what the whole TERF thing is, T-E-R-F, Trans Exclusionary Radical Feminist, TERF war. That's what that's about, is that they are saying that trans exclusionary radical feminists, or really gender critical feminists, are not taking the social constructivist critique all the way, and therefore that they're conservatives who are trying to maintain the status quo around biological sex, which is just socially constructed too. So where did they get this crazy idea that biological sex is socially constructed? Judith Butler. And Judith Butler uh, wrote, and I didn't put it in my notes, so I can't remember. I think this is in Gender Trouble, her 1990 book. It's possible that it's in Bodies That Matter, her 1993 book. Pretty sure I didn't put the citation in here. I don't have the chance while I'm recording to go look it up. So we're going to assume that it's Gender Trouble, 1990. Very famous sentence that she writes. If the immutable character of sex is contested, perhaps this construct called sex is as culturally constructed as gender. Indeed, perhaps it was always already gender, with the consequence that the distinction between sex and gender turns out to be no distinction at all. And this is Judith Butler's style. Oh, perhaps this, perhaps that, perhaps this, question, question. Everybody else can go do the dirty work. I'm just going to say these complicated sentences. What she's forwarding here is the idea that sex and gender aren't different, and if gender is wholly socially constructed, then sex must also be wholly socially constructed, And so this is where the gender critical feminists or gender critical, critical gender theorists lose their standing because the dialectic is progressing without them. And they get rendered the new conservatives because they are not applying the social constructivist dialectic, the next step to the next thing, which all you have to do is see, as she says, uh, if the immutable characteristic uh, character of sex is contested, if we do this Alfhaben. Perhaps the construct called sex is as culturally constructed as gender. Indeed, perhaps it was already gender. And so she just introduces this little idea that sex and gender, which the gender-critical feminists worked for decades to separate, sex and gender are indeed maybe the same thing. Maybe there is no distinction at all between sex and gender. And so since we've now concluded that gender is socially constructed, clearly sex must be too. And so queer theory is born out of this there were writings before 1990. Judith Butler was writing before 1990, but other people, Gail Rubin in 1984 wrote Thinking Sex. Um, there are other people writing in the 80s, in particular, laying the groundwork for queer theory. But what happens is that queer theory, especially in this sentence from Judith Butler in one of her most influential works, extends the range of social constructivism and its thesis in gender-critical theory, to ask not just about gender but about sex. So it drives the thing into a deeper place. This is, of course, more postmodern, which makes sense because gender critical gender theory, being that it wants to be socially constructivist about gender, even though it's deeply informed by classical Marxist theory, um, never got particularly it got a little bit neo-Marxist, but never got particularly neo-Marxist. It instead wanted to graft on this like, social constructivism of postmodernism. That was a thing that that gender critical feminism was waiting for, was postmodernism. The neo-Marxist critique was useful, but only so far. Um, so Judith Butler brings in her garbled version of Derrida's poststructuralism, her less garbled version of Foucault's ideas about knowledge and power, Austin's idea that she just kind of stuck on something that it probably doesn't apply to of performativity. And really this, you know, when I said Foucault, we're talking about his general thrust of expanding the potentialities of being Butler brought this into the question of sex while other people also were I mean, thinking sex, obviously we're talking about Gail Rubin, but 1984, but, uh, this is where queer theory is coming out of. And so we see, of course, the Achilles heel of critique and deconstruction is that it can't stop. The dialectic must progress. It has to go further and further and further, or else that it risks maintaining some status quo. This is where I've argued before that they can't compromise because anything left on the table, any ounce left on the table, you know, you put a pound of flesh, they leave one ounce on the table. That's maintaining the status quo. They can't do it. So it's Achilles heel is that the dialectic must progress. The slope must be slippery. The slope will always be slippery because it must be slippery because if there's any friction on the leftist slope, you might stick in the status quo and that's unacceptable. They are polishing that thing to high gloss Teflon. So you're going to slip all the way down. The leftist slope is always slippery. It's theoretically demanded once you get into this line of thinking. So in the language of Butler though, what we see is that anything that you leave on the table maintains some economy of difference. So for Judith Butler and the queer theorist, gender is not enough, sex also must be deconstructed. So we're getting some understanding of queer theory now so that we can finally get to the point eventually. We've got a long way to go still. So queer theorists insist that taking the social constructivism of the gender-critical theorists before them, they have to go a step further than that and say basically that the imposition of categories of sex, gender, and sexuality themselves, the imposition of categories, which I don't think Judith Butler specifically said this. I haven't dug deep into it, but it's associated with her and her ideas. She said things that got summarized into a term, violence of categorization. She said that the the existence of the categories and the placement of people into them causes a form of violence. This is sometimes referred to now as a violence of categorization. That's a queer theory idea. The existence of the categories and the imposition of categories onto people at all, creates an oppressive superstructure, namely cis-heteronormativity that needs to be dismantled. And now you'll notice we've moved from patriarchy with the feminists to cis-heteropatriarchy with the gender criticals to cis-heteronormativity with the queer theorists. They have shifted the ball, and this is going to be super important when we start talking about why feminism loses, because that's the sticking point where people don't understand why you can be transgender but not trans race. They're comparing the wrong things. They're not thinking in queer theory. They're thinking in feminism, which I get it. They're related, but they're not that related. So under queer theory, one cannot merely lean into a woman to dismantle the category under cis heteronormativity, which is what feminism might do to dismantle patriarchy. You know, be very, you know, strong woman, strong, independent woman. Don't need no man, whatever. Right. Leaning into the category of woman under cis-heteronormativity actually upholds the idea that there's something fundamentally different between men and women. And that's the thing that's said to be imposed by cis-heteronormativity. So in queer theory, it's completely different. Women aren't the other anymore. The other is falling outside of the standard normative categories and binaries imposed by cis-heteronormativity. So when you lean into being a woman, you are actually not challenging So if a woman leans into being a woman, I should be very clear, you're not actually challenging cis-heteronormativity, you're enforcing cis-heteronormativity. Even if you're not cis or hetero, you're still reinforcing these normativities. However, however, if a man leans into being a woman, that challenges the very idea. Now you're not cis. You might not be hetero, and you're certainly not being normative. So, that changes things completely under queer theory. Queer theory has completely bulldozed feminism, and feminism hasn't quite figured it out because feminism is still kind of trucking along, and then they are in constant wars with one another. So, queer theory does not believe that one can deconstruct cis heteronormativity by leaning into some identity that it's ultimately produced by it. Unless you're doing so ironically or transgressively in some way, the whole point is that you have to transgress the cis-heteronormative paradigm entirely. And since queer theory focuses on transgressing the paradigm, that's why you can be transgender. You can't be trans race. We already talked about that. This is why you can be transgender. You have to transgress the paradigm. So... This is, again, it's very related. You know, this only makes sense from within the position that it, you, you can lean into the position that is being oppressed by the fully uh, developed superstructure. Here says her normativity. And only from in that position, by leaning into that position, do you actually challenge the roots of that superstructure or so you can remake the system at a fundamental level. So I want to read, I'm not going to read very much queer theory to you. Um, I'm working on some other stuff with queer theory and I'll come back to it. Uh, later and read more to you from it. But I want to read a little bit from a paper um, I stumbled upon recently. This is a 2016 paper by Hannah Dyer, Queer Futurity, and childhood innocence beyond the injury of development and I want to you know we're not going to linger on the fact that actually the queer theorists do want to destroy the idea of childhood innocence and you see this all over the place there's what these masturbation videos for six-year-olds this weird blues clues trans parade with like every nightmare you can possibly imagine I'm not even going to go into the details but it's a it's a horror show if you've not seen the video you probably will sooner or later. Um, but again, in children's stuff, we're seeing this brought into children's classes. We're seeing children being taught about pornography and all these kinds of seeing trans or drag queen story hour or whatever porn star story hour for children. Again, you know, if you want to be into porn, that's your own business. I'm not going to say one thing or the other, but children, children. Okay. So I want to read a bit from this to give you an idea, a flavor of how queer theory thinks. This is going to be about children, so I apologize that it's kind of gross, but I really want to underscore the idea of what queer means, and this is a wonderful little paragraph for doing it. So in this paper, the, the author, I'll have to say the author because I saw Hannah, but one never knows about what pronouns to use. 16, 19 different pronouns could apply. The author writes, I employ queer, that's in quotes, meaning the word, I employ the word queer to both A, classify sexuality, so queer sexuality, and B, reference deviance from cultural norms. Thus, children who self-identify or are identified with LGBTQ culture may be considered queer, but queer childhood should not be constrained to identificatory regimes or an assumption of the stability of sex or gender. I suggest that the queer contours of childhood are the child's desires that refuse to grow up toward normative ways of being an adult, and therefore also the residual adult desire to play and to be creative. In this sense, I borrow from queer theory's insistence that queerness is that which undoes identity, not what holds it together. I am not interested in only promoting queer as a category of identity that promises social cohesion. Rather, I am thinking with Dina Georgis's notion of queer affects as the return of memory and desire discarded for its ability to undo social identity. For those of you that listened, by the way, to my Hegel podcast recently, you'll hear the uh, the queer affects as the return of memory and desire discarded. And Hegel was talking about how speculative philosophy recollects something more primordial. So for queer people, they believe that they have this kind of primordial identity that queering helps them recollect or remember the return of memory and desire discarded. Queer affect for Georges is what agitates our ability to fully know ourselves and its presence is a result of memory, fantasy, and loss discarded because it is difficult to bear. In this formulation, queer is not what makes us recognizable to the other. It is what undoes us and what here can work to undo the innocent, capital C, child. So this is what queer theory is about. Not going to dwell on the child part yet, it'll make sense later. It's important, but it's a means of classifying a sexuality, a queer sexuality. It's also a reference to deviance from cultural norms. See that? It is uh, the queer contours of childhood are the child's desires that refuse to grow up toward normative ways of being an adult. Okay. Queerness is that which undoes identity, not what holds it together. Okay, so you have this. This is what queer is about. So hopefully you have a slight understanding of queer theory. Let me diverge for a minute into um, women. Aren't women supposed to be an oppressed category? This is the sticking point. This is the big sticking point where people try to make sense of why can you be transgender, but why can't you be trans race? They say, oh, well, men are trying to be women and therefore they're leaning into a minority status and That is like white people wanting to be black, or maybe they take it one level further and they say, wait, no, no, no. People are trying to be young women are trying to be trans men as well, or some people are being non-binary. So they're leaning into an oppressed sexual minority status or gender minority status, I should say, and, or both. And that's like white people wanting to be black. So why can't you can have trans that, but you can't have trans the other thing. And the reason is because you're, you're not thinking, the reason for the first one is that queer theory destroyed feminism. And therefore, because queer theory destroyed feminism by taking its own argument past the point, past the breaking point, feminism has no ground to stand on. So women are no longer the oppressed other, although sort of, we'll see. And the reason you can't do it with race is, like I said before, the incentive structures don't line up. Um, And the way that queer theory and critical race theory theorize how you attack identity, we need to, in queer theory, undo identity, so you have to lean into the things that transgress identity, whereas with critical race theory you have to lean into the imposed identity and use it um, kind of under a black is beautiful uh, point of resistance, because their claim underneath it all is that we couldn't get away from it anyway. But as for the issue about feminism with women, when are women oppressed? When are they oppressed in the oppressed category? Well, only when under now, now that there's queer theory, only when it's convenient to the theory, which means when patriarchy can be needled as the reason that somebody's getting a raw deal, but not when cis-heteronormativity is being foregrounded as the problem. Uh, So this, just to draw it out, this parallels how critical race theory theorizes Asians and Jews who are both highly successful, at least in American society, uh, a lot of Western societies, or to a lesser degree, light-skinned Latinos, mixed race people, light-skinned black people with the colorism thing. Um, these people kind of form Schrodinger's minorities, right? You know, Schrodinger's superposition, you know, you're, you're a wave and a particle at the same time, you're here and there at the same time, you're oppressed and privileged at the same time. And these things actually happen because their theories basically suck and they they don't have realistic descriptions of, of reality. But frankly, like I just described a bit ago, women are no longer the oppressed minority because even though they are oppressed by patriarchy, patriarchy is just one stop on a longer slide that's infinitely slippery. And that slide is dictated by cis-heteronormativity because saying that women are oppressed requires women to make sense and if women make sense then cis normativity is upheld and not being challenged so queer theory bulldozes feminism um and they don't really care that this seems to be a contradiction i'm going to kind of wheel into a um conceptual break here then where we can just kind of understand the, the parallels of what's going on Race is, for the most part, not performed, is imposed. We're going with critical race theory. Whiteness is performed, however, and must be resisted. That requires people to intentionally be other to whiteness, that is, people of color and blackness. Sex, gender, and sexuality and queer theory are performed, while normativity, an expectation to be normal, is what's imposed. And that requires people to be intentionally transgressive of the normative, i.e. nonconforming, queer, trans, etc which then invites them to break down the fundamental meaning of those categories. So this is why the two theorize things differently, but they really have the same picture. There's some superstructure that imposes power on people that they don't want, and there are two different strategies for resisting it. Those strategies result in that you can be transgender, but you cannot be trans race. And those strategies, as I will argue as we continue, arise from the different incentive structures. So the question that we have to dig at then to get deeper into this is why do queer and gender theory invite people into the other identity in a means that deconstructs their very meaning while critical race theory invites people into the other identity in a way that must protect and ex- protect the identity and exclude people who don't belong in it from it. And that's where I think the underlying incentives come into the picture. But to understand this, we need to understand a little bit more about how the identities theorize what identity means not the identities in particular, but what identity means. And that has everything to do with oppression theory holds and this critical social justice theory. Overall, it doesn't matter which one holds that the lived experience of oppression is a properly basic category. Properly basic means that you don't actually have to uh, justify it. You just can lean into it. Um, You can just take it as being a fact or true. Um, so in philosophy, something can be, there's a better term for this. And, and I was talking recently about this exact topic with Stephen Hicks and trying to explain it to him. He's actually a philosopher and he named the idea. I'm not a philosopher, so I don't know what it was and I, I can't look it up. So I'm going with properly basic, which conveys the meaning anyway. And if it's slightly wrong, you can deal with it. It's okay. Um, the point of communication is to get an idea across, not to say exactly what makes some philosophy enthusiast happy. Um, but something can be said to be properly basic if you don't have to justify it. It's a actual starting place for knowledge. It's somewhere that you can take as a starting place for what is and what is not true. So you have the kind of this ultimate skeptic in Western philosophy, uh, Rene Descartes, and his solution to this ultimate skepticism of how can I know anything at all was, well, cogito ergo sum in Latin, which he actually said in French, which translates in English as I think, therefore I am. And that's considered a properly basic beginning place for knowledge under the skeptical tradition or the Cartesian tradition. So he Descartes was able to be convinced of his own existence because he knew that he can think. And he knew that if he can think, then there must be a thinker who's doing the thinking. And it made perfect sense to him to call that thinker I. So he was therefore convinced of his own existence. So critical constructivists, that's the inheritors, it's the woke, uh, critical constructivism is the fusion of social constructivism from kind of postmodern thinking and uh, critical theory from neo-Marxism. Critical constructivists have more or less thrown all of this out the window because social constructivist thesis, the social constructivist thesis that they operate from is fundamentally anti-realist, uh, which is a feature of postmodernity. that's a, the truth, the world might be out there, but the truth isn't out there. We don't actually have the access, the ability to get at truth. Um, so we have ideas, we have models, we have things we say about the world, but they are not actually true. And the knowledge is contingent upon our cultural, uh, conditions and presuppositions and all of this. So we aren't actually, when we describe, we try to describe reality, we're not actually describing reality. So therefore postmodernism is anti-realist. There is no court t- for them. There is no meaningful correspondence between our ideas, our models, our words, and the real world we're attempting to communicate about. And in fact, for them, everything's wrapped up in power. This is one of the kind of features of postmodernism, the fundamental rejection of reality on some level, uh, which is rooted in what we call the postmodern knowledge principle and cynical theories that that knowledge is actually a function, it is socially constructed or culturally constructed, and thus a function of the power dynamics operating in that society. We could call it also a postmodern power thesis if we want, and it's that everything boils down to power. All knowledge is ultimately an expression of power, and so there's no understanding of anything that's not actually just an articulation of power. That's postmodern thought. It's really um, very much uh, Michel Foucault's thought. Um we could talk a bit about Derrida where Derrida says there's this infinite deferral of meaning. We don't have to really talk about this, but for him, that meant that the true, the, the only thing that's really, really true that's really, really meaningful. If you have an infinite deferral of meaning by everything that's words is the immediate quality of lived experience that is not translated into words, um, whether that's possible or not. And that, you know, though Sartre wasn't a, Postmodernist. He was in that milieu. He was a leftist. I think he was a Marxist. He was writing the forward for the postmodern. Some of the postmodernists' works. Um, the great ex- existentialist, jean Paul Sartre, uh, very anti Enlightenment for him. You know, again, under ex- existentialism, meaning is completely lost. It's all nihilistic. But at least you have the immediate lived experience that you that you have, and it's very hedonistic in this regard. Um, Foucault's Michel Foucault, in particular, uh, was was obsessed with the idea of expanding the potentialities of being. He's obsessed with the ideas of how power is applied to bodies. These are two themes that, that the feminists went on to to use to make queer theory, and they were really excited about them. Um, it's also a concept that generi- generalizes pretty neatly to challenging cis heteronormativity in a pretty straightforward way. Expanding the potentialities of being—that's the goal power is applied to bodies. Well, so are categories, you know, sex assigned at birth now, instead of, you know, the sex you are at birth now. So, um, what about, what about black people and women? Well, you know, this kind of line of thought does get brought up. You remember that Kimberly Crenshaw brought in postmodernism, just not the vulgar constructionism. And so you hear this same kind of line um, where it comes to, you know, the policing of black bodies. For example, that's a very Foucadian idea that's been incorporated, although it's been grafted onto the neo-Marxist concept of systemic power, the way that they conceived of it. Uh, same thing with women aren't women supposed to be a category of people who are are controlled at the level of their bodies too? That isn't that the feminist critique? Well, of course it is. So you're going to see that there's more parallels between feminism and critical race theory than there are between queer theory and critical race theory. Uh, they are, and that's why they were so eager to take this up because they thought, well, if we can deconstruct all that, then, you know, we're in business. Um, We can remove the control over women by by questioning the very foundations for that control. And so they took up a lot of this postmodernism that I was just mentioning. Um, This is where we can start to understand, though, that the critical constructivist idea becomes super important to reordering how identity is thought about within the woke Ideology, because let's go back to Foucault's idea, for example, that there's a relationship between power and knowledge that's actually a perfect identification. He constitutes them into a single idea that he called power knowledge, with a slash between them. But power and knowledge are literally two sides of the same coin. It's not just Francis Bacon's assertion that knowledge is power, meaning really that knowledge confers power or enables power, but rather that power and knowledge are literally identical, and. Uh, all claims to knowledge under foucauldian thought become assertions of power and nothing more if you take him all the way to his limits like many of these people who picked him up did but if this is true let's go back to our cartesian skepticism i think therefore i am so that's self-knowledge if this is true that all knowledge is actually just an expression of power then all self-knowledge is also just an expression of power and that power resides in the social environment the cultural environment in which you live of course this also graphs onto the idea of, the neo marxist idea of false consciousness so you can see how these 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 dialectical ideas sort to fuse together um but if you really think about it for a second, if there's no self-knowledge that's not an expression of power, then there's no self-knowledge that isn't tainted by the extant power dynamics of society. So this is the thing then, where the queer, where the queer theorists are like, oh, we're socialized into our identities that we perform, and they inscribe and reinscribe themselves through our performances on our bodies, blah 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 blah. So for these people, Descartes might be able to say that he exists because he can think but he can't say that he exists as anything other than the product of the culture that limits how he thinks. And so he doesn't really have the ability to know who he is. This is kind of the idea that postmodernism would have brought in and critical constructivism would have adopted. And in critical constructivism, we bring in that awareness of the power dynamic. So if he's privileged, then he'll think that he's just thinking, willfully ignorant of the power dynamic that he's benefiting from. But if he's oppressed by some superstructure-based power dynamic, like white supremacy or whatever, then he would know that he's actually not just thinking at all, but is thinking in the way that is simultaneously aware of and that rejects the imposition of that systemic power on him, which is W.E.B. Du Bois' double consciousness, or one that is made uncomfortable by the imposition of this power in a different way, which is where you have the kind of true primordial identity of queer theory that has to be, have to have everything stripped away from it. So, um, within critical race theory, you have the inferiority of blackness being the thing that's being stripped away. Whereas in queer theory, you have the very idea that you can have an identity inscribed upon you by say sex assigned at birth. It's the thing that has to be stripped away. So again, those, when you take those as two fundamental different positions, then you can see why it is that, uh, the theories diverge in terms of what you're going to do about this imposition of power upon you through identity. So the theory holds, though, critical constructivist theory holds that only by having the correct critical consciousness of the superstructure-oriented power dynamic in play can you truly think for yourself or understand yourself, self-knowledge included. So only by being critically aware of white supremacy can you actually enact true blackness, aka political blackness, as Nicole Hannah-Jones of the 1619 Project had it. Or only by truly understanding cis-heteronormativity can you understand that maybe it doesn't apply to you. And truly know yourself and truly aware, become aware for yourself that you're trans or gay or whatever. And this is literally Eve Sedgwick's epistemology of the closet, that you're when you're in the closet, you don't really know you're in the closet. But when you come out of the closet, then you know you're coming out of the closet. Otherwise, though, it's all just imposed culture, as Foucault would have it, or the imposed heteronymous interests of the white supremacist, cis-heteropatriarchal capitalist consumer system, which would be kind of an adaptation of Marcuse's Neo-Marxism, that are actually controlling your consciousness, thus your thoughts, thus your self-knowledge, which none of which are actually your own. They are socialized or imposed one way or another, and all this must be dismantled. And that socialized versus imposed is kind of a big deal. Queer theory being more more postmodern is more interested in the socialization into systems of power. So those are the things that are going, socialization is a thing that's going to have to be challenged. Whereas neo-Marxism, critical race theory being more neo-Marxist is going to be more concerned with the imposition of power. So it's going to challenge that imposition. So again, these are fundamental reasons why you can indeed be transgender under theory, but you can't be trans race. They have to deal with those different things differently. Um, and, but again, I tell you, it all comes back to the incentives as we'll see. So what you have with the Critical constructivists is this new idea that to really know anything, you have to have the appropriate Critical Consciousness, which is bestowed only authentically by directly experiencing the relevant oppression by systemic power. So Descartes, I think, therefore I am, turns into the Critical constructivists: I experience systemic oppression as a part of my lived reality, therefore I understand myself and the world I inhabit. In other words, I am oppressed therefore i think which is a complete departure and i guess we could go from thinking therefore am but they don't care they they actually aren't worried about existence they're only worried about whether or not they have the ability to know and they are setting themselves up by having critical consciousness or wokeness as being more aware of what's going on and therefore the having the capacity to have knowledge which everybody else is actually denied. Whether you take that from the Foucauldian perspective I just talked about, or the Marcusean perspective, or the woke, which blends them both, doesn't matter. So I am oppressed, therefore I think is the correct uh, summary of that. So just like in the conclusion though of the Cartesian meditation that the, the leads to I think, therefore I am theory holds that understanding that comes from the lived experience of oppression cannot be questioned it is a starting place for knowledge it is a place where knowledge will be built it is properly basic and so properly basic in theory whether doesn't matter if it's queer theory doesn't matter if it's critical race theory doesn't matter if it's one of the other theories the lived experience of oppression becomes properly basic and so race is theorized as being imposed by a white supremacist superstructure that holds people of color especially blacks as inferior That's the CRT superstructure idea. Race is therefore going to be theorized in a way that leads with race is imposed upon us and creates, uh, but particularly inferiority by race has imposed upon us and creates a lived experience of oppression, which is properly basic. It can't be questioned. That will be incentive structure useful for identity politics. The way that that's going to be resisted is by rejecting the inferiority that's being imposed. Transracial Identities would therefore be illegal because they would lead you to claim a lived experience of oppression that wasn't there if you were white claiming to be person of color, or it would lead you to attempt to escape the imposition of inferiority in a way that sells out the identity politics, say acting white or being a race traitor, Uncle Tom or Uncle Tim we have now, or whatever, which is to say it would really also bust up the grift. Gender is theorized as being imposed by a cis-heteronormative structure, not patriarchy. Okay, Patriarchy is old. Patriarchy is what you use as the halfway point or when it's useful, but it's now a cis-heteronormative structure that holds that gender and sexual minorities and gender nonconformists are weird and abnormal, and that's a gender theory superstructure that has to be challenged. So gender theory is therefore Uh, Theorized, we don't have to make black people normal or appear normal or resist their abnormality. We have to resist their inferiority. In gender theory, we have to resist the idea that people think that they're weirdos. And so you have to normalize by leaning into and pushing that. So you see, I'm here, I'm normal. It's a very gay pride kind of thing, but taken to a ridiculous and dangerous extreme. So gender is therefore theorized in a way that leads with being told to be who I am is being imposed upon me, which creates a lived experience of oppression under that violence of categorization that's considered properly basic, and that's not just useful for identity politics, there's a power dimension there of course too, but that it's more useful for identity politics than patriarchy and feminism are. Outside of the one limited domain that third wave feminism particularly focuses on, which is the domain of rape culture, which is where women can still kind of assert, or maybe sometimes you'll see them assert to try to get more jobs, but they're already overrepresented in most professional capacities now, except at the very kind of CEO, Congress, whatever. You look at educational attainment, you look in lots of professional categories now, women are dramatically overrepresented, and so their narrative is kind of difficult to maintain. So how is cis-heteronormativity as a superstructure to be resisted? By rejecting the abnormality of gender bending or of adopting some of the 1619 minority sexualities that are out there, and then demanding that that to be seen just as normative and normal and acceptable as anything else. Though this is kind of complicated, because they don't actually want to be seen as normal or normative either, because that would maintain normativity, which is their problem, that would be bad. So it results in this kind of weird anti-normalization acceptance movement that seeks to normalize and not normalize, or to force people to accept but not accept all at the same time. So it's very queer, and they're not fussed by that contradiction. Um, they, they actually find the co- contradiction, we can read Eve Sedgwick about this, productive of their... Uh, productive of their goals. Let's see if I can actually find quickly where Cedric says that. Uh, She says, for example, um, we have this quoted in Cynical Theories, uh, in consonance with my emphasis on the performative relations of double and conflicted definition, the theorized prescription for a practical politics implicit in these readings is for a multi-pronged movement whose idealist and materialist impulses, whose minority model and universalist model strategies, and for that matter, whose gender separatist and gender integrative analyses would like, likewise proceed in parallel without any high premium place on ideological rationalization between them. So she's, we're going to have multiple approaches and we're not going to try to to make those work. um, She also says this book will not suggest, nor do I believe there currently exists any standpoint of thought from which the rival claims of these minoritizing and universalizing understandings of sexual definition could be decisively arbitrated as to their, quote, truth. Instead, the performative effects of the self-contradictory discursive field of force, self-contradictory discursive field of force created by their overlap will be my subject. So what she's literally saying is that it's useful for her identity politics to be self-contradictory. So we'll just do that. And so queer theory doesn't have a problem with this. It's all very queer. Um, it can make it can make no sense, and that's better because that's more queer. Um, so anyway, if we we stuck with maintaining the category of woman under the feminist analysis, not only are we maintaining part of the status quo, um, that would protect you know capital W woman the way the critical race theory protects capital B black, uh, then we would not be paying attention to the true deeper further down the, the critical constructivist track problem of cis normativity would be stuck on patriarchy, which is old and not very fruitful for further for identity politics and not particularly fruitful for the particular grift that's at hand. Uh, it's very difficult to, by the way, to produce a gigantic grift for 51% of the population, much easier to create a grift for a smaller percentage of the population. Um, There are lots of reasons probably for this, but it boils down, in fact, to the fact that the feminists, the gender critical feminists in particular, have no defense against queer theory taking their stuff a step further. So for example, you don't know what it's like to be black is theoretically unassailable, properly basic. You don't know what it's like to be a woman is, however, theoretically assailable by, well, you don't know what it's like to have been born with your sex and gender out of sync. Or gender's performative anyway so I can learn what it's like to be a woman, and already know a lot because I've seen those performances my whole life. These provide powerful overrides to the assumptions of critical gender theory and allow that slope to be slipperier. So you slide down the gender slope and you don't stop at feminism. You don't stop at women being oppressed. You stop at cis or heteronormativity being the problem. Turns out this also comes up, by the way, it's not just women who are getting screwed over by queer theory, it's also gay people, surprisingly. Gay versus queer. Remember we had in our paper that I quoted that queer is a sexual identity. That's one of the things she's using the word to mean, two things at once, because that's productive of being complicated. Queer theory. But you have this problem of straight passing gays. Think about like Pete Buttigieg, how he got bombed. They said, oh, he might sleep with men or be married to a man or whatever, but he's not gay. It's because he's not queer. Straight passing gays don't fare any better than women when the social constructivist monster comes to town. Straight passing, marriage equality, all these things are not queer. In fact, they uphold normativity. Cis heteronormativity is going to be held up. So um, having 16, 19 genders and 16, 19 more sexualities represents an answer to this more properly basic line of thought. Or having queer, which is the identity without an essence. As we heard in the paper is better but if you stick it no i'm gay and i'm gonna wear normal clothes and not twerk in front of police officers in rainbow shorts or be a be a you know performative fool then you're not actually doing it right you're not you're not taking it far enough and so you're upholding the status quo you're maintaining cis heteronormativity so both women in and, and actual uh, lesbians and gays and bisexuals and to some degree trans people lose to queer theory. The Q is seriously the problem. So trans is more powerful than woman. Queer is more powerful than gay under queer theory, in the same way that black is more powerful than Asian in critical race theory. Uncomfortable truths here on the New Discourses podcast. So trans is more protected than woman. Queer is more protected than gay. Black is more protected than white adjacent. And so those other things, woman, gay, uh white adjacent Asians, Latinos, etc. are not really protected minorities except when it's useful to identify them. Stop AA and H P I hate. <laughs> it's such a manufactured BS thing. Pretending now all of a sudden that Asian Americans like Chinese, Japanese, Korean, etc. and Laotian, Cambodian, we could go on and on and on. Uh, Native Hawaiian and Pacific Islanders are all one identity now, so it's very useful because they can try to voice some narrative to try to protect themselves. Fake, fake. Um, Anyway, I I digress. Uh, But this is how this all works in general, and this is why, again, you can be transgender under queer theory, which is part of critical social justice theory, but you cannot be transracial under critical race theory, which is part of critical social justice theory. To summarize that, transgender challenges this heteronormativity by calling into question the very validity of the categories involved, but more importantly because of this, it in turn calls into question the very notion that those categories can be imposed upon anybody by any superstructure-type power dynamic because they don't even make sense. Adopting a transgender identity or any of the other, I keep saying 16, 19 squared, other gender and sexual identities means stepping into the position of the oppressed other by this system of power that's at the center of all intersectional thinking. So that is allowed because queer theory views the expectation that one will adopt the sex, gender, and sexual identity that society is inscribing upon it and by deeming it appropriate and will perform those roles accordingly. Being intentionally transgressive of this adopts the position of other and is therefore allowed. That resists the power dynamic in play, which is the only thing you're allowed to do because it threatens the superstructure itself and might bring about a revolution in the Marxian sense. So being normal is said to be imposed. Being authentically abnormal or queer is therefore encouraged, which requires breaking down those fundamental categories upon which normal obtains meaning. Thus, you can be transgender under critical social justice theory. Transracial, on the other hand, is not viewed as challenging white supremacy at all. Because white people are believed to be imposing white supremacy anyway, so what it does is it offers white people, or even people of color, a way out of grappling with either their privilege or the realities of their lived experience of oppression, by claiming to understand some oppression or by seizing the mantle of privilege that they are not actually able to understand or seize. So you have protected racial categories in transracial uh, or in critical race theory. So transracial identities are not allowed. So while similar but different, while both of these theories say that you should lean into the role of the oppressed others, and here's the rub, here's why it comes out differently besides the incentive structures, a theoretical reason, both also insist that you can only lean into an oppressed other role authentically. Black people do that by becoming politically black. White people who try to claim blackness are not being authentic to their white privilege. Black people who try to identify with whiteness are not being authentic to the experience that they've had as of oppression. They're selling out their, uh, their blackness. They're acting white. They're race traitors. They're Uncle Toms, etc. Black people under the theory are said to have double consciousness so they know on some level, even if they have oppressed or internalized, I should say racism, even if they have internalized oppression, they know on some level. And being transracial, no matter which direction you go, would be theoretically inauthentic. and Inauthenticity, which means agreement with theory, is not allowed because racial structural determinism isn't involved in that because you're trying to pretend that white supremacy didn't apply. Now, things get a little obvious here um, in a kind of gross way where, like, really... Um, when we start to compare against queer theory, because it's the truth is that it's just really a lot harder to deny one's race to other people most of the time than it is to deny somebody's internal claim of some internal feeling of who they really are with regard to gender identity or sexuality. The queer theory people, like if you're black, it's really kind of hard to deny that. People can tell, they can see, but if you just decide that you identify as a woman today, that's internal. You can do whatever you want. So it's all in your head. Um, And this is important though, because this is where it gets really grotesque because gender identity and sexuality can actually be confusing for people, especially troubled people and even more, especially adolescents, even mostly Important children and adolescents who are gay, neuroatypical in some way, various personality or other psychological disorders, disorders like anxieties or depressions, schizoidia, um, borderline personality is going to be more like is probably not actually applicable here. Borderline personality is going to be more like um, trying to claim power through this. But, but kids and, and adolescents who are gay and they're um, maybe even sometimes autistic, or they have other neuroatypical presentations, often struggle with trying to fit into the categories that they don't really feel like make sense to them. Social rules can be confusing. And so they become a very vulnerable population that can be preyed upon by queer theory, which leads into, again, that thing I talked about at the beginning, that psychopaths and the incentive structures have a lot to do with this. So... Where um, it's very cut and dry why you can't be transracial, I think, by what I just said a minute ago. It's very different because what's going on with queer theory is all inside your head. It's claims about how you feel, whereas it's claims about what you are, how you are being viewed and what's being imposed upon you by how you look. Which is not so easy to deny in critical race theory. So people who claim to be trans and queer are to queer theory stepping into their authentic primordial self, but into also that oppressed other by heteronormativity, And the thing is that nobody can possibly question them on it. They could, they can just say, anybody can just say, and this is a gigantic opening for people who are dangerous people and also for people who are troubled to get exploited, that they've always felt different. Or They can be convinced, in fact, that they've always felt different internally, and then they are now stepping into their true selves or primordial identity outside of the socialization of society, which, which is trying to expect them to be normal, which they don't always feel. And so they were always really oppressed. This is the thing that you can actually convince people of. It's a very dangerous... Queer theory is profoundly dangerous and disgusting in this regard. So... The doctrine, because of this, because it's all internal and has so much nasty, psychopathic grooming going on, demands in queer theory positive affirmation from people who are trying to get others to accept that the claim that to avoid causing additional harm, we have to positively identify and celebrate this othered identity that people are claiming that they feel, and that comes by both denying it and by attempting to force heteronormativity onto people if they did deny it or didn't deny it. So queer structural determinism is seen as happening and that you can escape that by leaning into a transgressive other of sex, gender, or sexuality identities. So to get cynical about this and turn into it, like I said at the beginning, it's obvious to me that the incentive structures are what caused this. The incentive structures in critical race theory and queer theory are actually different, kind of break them down in each case, the theories formed under these incentive structures. And I'm going to make the case that it's actually transparent. If you read their literature, where these things came from, I'm not going to go deep into queer theory. That's a topic for another day. This podcast is really long as it is, but in critical race theory, I want to expose it very clearly because I haven't done this and I keep saying it and people are getting mad at me. So I'm going to do it with critical race theory. The incentives, as I said earlier, in critical race theory that led to the formation of critical race theory as critical race theory is are identity politics and affirmative action. That's it. Special set-asides for certain racial identity groups that can be identified by theory as being historically marginalized and therefore continually marginalized. And these require identity to be real or at least reified and leaned into or they don't make sense. You can't have affirmative action if there are no racial categories. And if you say, well, it's all just socially constructed and fake, then there's no ground. Most people actually won't accept it. And the identity politics don't make sense. No, we're just individuals. Race is socially constructed. There's no black community to become a voting block. No black community to become a identity politic wedge. Um, a large block of people that politicians can then move around and use or whatever, or even the people that want to make money, like in the corporate sense, can then manipulate or whatever. You have to lean into identity. So the grift under critical race theory requires leaning into identity. And that requires also, because that grift only goes to certain people, that identity to be protected. So you see massive identity-based protectionism under the theorization, critical race theory is a theorization of race. As I said, we have to pay attention who to who the most dangerous people are. These ideas, these incentives, I should say, empower race hustlers and the most broken people among them will push the direction of the theorist, of the theory the hardest. So, just in general, as always, the rule is that there are going to be these kind of clueless theorists who are going along with the ideas, who've been kind of roped into it, and they develop the theory, and then there are going to be psychopaths and other, say, cluster B personalities who know that they can game this theory to their own benefit or to cause some kind of harm that they enjoy causing, like tearing down a society that they're mad at, enriching themselves, empowering themselves, seeing people that they don't like being punished in some way. And the psychos are actually the ones driving it. And they can get other people wrapped up in their grievance game and push this thing further. Meanwhile, again, like I said, you have these kind of clueless academic theorists interacting with these things and just kind of going along with it, thinking it's great and pushing the theory along. But the real drive to push the the direction of the theory is always going to be by the psychopaths who are trying to game the incentive structures the most vigorously. And the people that they can then around them convince to Go along with those incentive structures. So the two that I identified for critical race theory are identity, identity politics and affirmative action. They are, of course, interactive and identity politics exist to facilitate the grift of affirmative action. And let me just kind of back up and we going to have to read some examples at length because I really want you to see that I'm not exaggerating this. I'm not making some weird accusation. I'm not trying to, you know, I'm going to get accused of being racist for saying any of this, but I want you to see that they really say it. Um, so as far as identity politics goes, Kimberly Crenshaw We already read from at the very beginning of and at the end of Mapping the Margins talks about these ideas that creating racial identity blocks for identity politics is the goal of her theorizing. Remember, we saw the set asides and productive identity politics thing earlier. You know, we have to protect that. And the vulgar construction thesis messes it up. Um... But at the beginning of the paper, she actually says the point. of Why is she writing mapping the margins in the first place as being her super influential paper that brought intersectionality to the mainstream? She writes, "Drawing from the strength of shared experience, women have recognized that the political demands of millions speak more powerfully than the pleas of an isolated of a, the pleas of a few isolated voices." This process of recognizing as social and systemic what was formerly perceived as isolated and individual has also characterized the identity politics of African-Americans, other people of color, and gays and lesbians, among others. For all of these groups, identity-based politics has been a source of strength, community, and intellectual development. So identity politics, that's why, that's why we're doing this. She then argues very explicitly at the end that you can't take racial identity away if you want to achieve these blocks. This is what I read earlier, but I'm going to read it in a slightly different arrangement. This is not to deny that the process of categorization is itself. Remember, it was just preceded, by the way, here with the set-asides for people of color and radio. But this is not to deny that the process of categorization itself is an exercise of power, but that the story is much more complicated and nuanced than that. First, the process of categorizing, or in identity terms naming, is not even unilateral. There's not unilateral, sorry. Subordinated people can and do participate, sometimes even subverting the naming process in empowering ways. One, so this is the that's the heart of critical race theory, we're going to participate in the naming process by approaching it subversively this way. One need only think about the historical subversion of the category black, or the current transformation of queer, to understand that categorization is not a one-way street. Clearly, there is unequal power, but there is nonetheless some degree of agency that people can and do exert in the politics of naming. And It is important to note that identity continues to be a site of resistance for members of different subordinated groups. We can all recognize the distinction between the claims, I am black. And the claim, I am a person who happens to be black. I am black takes a socially imposed identity and empowers it as an anchor of subjectivity. I am black becomes not simply a statement of resistance, but also a positive discourse of self-identification intimately linked to celebratory statements like the black nationalist, black is beautiful. I am a person who happens happens to be black, on the other hand, achieves self-identification by straining for a certain universality. In effect, I am first a person and for a concomitant dismissal of the imposed category black as contingent, circumstantial, non-determinant. There is truth in both characterizations, of course, but they function quite differently depending on the political context. At this point in history, a strong case can be made that the most critical resistance strategy for disempowered groups is to occupy and defend a politics of social location, that is identity politics, rather than to vacate and destroy it. So her motivation is to create identity politics blocks. This ultimately demands locking people into those identity politics blocks. Politically black, for example, is different from being racially black. And if you're just racially black and not politically black, you're a race traitor, you're an Uncle Tom, you're an Uncle Tim, you're some other word, and requiring them to become identity political activists for that project. That's incentive number one. Create progressive race politics blocks. For identity politics, as defined not in the civil rights movement, but by the radicals who were pushing for this stuff beginning in the late 1970s going forward. The other big incentive structure here for critical race theory is affirmative action. And this requires a little more backing up, but I'm going to get to it. And frankly, this is what's at the heart of a lot of how critical race theory thinks, including their drive for identity politics that we just read about. It's the continuation of tangible and less tangible dimensions of grift under affirmative action programs. Those include money, opportunity, power career advancement, special treatment, educational attainment, etc. That's what's really at the heart of this. We just saw in Crenshaw, the thing where she talked about, you know, set asides having to be protected and that requires us to have an identity politics. That's what she said in mapping the margins. Well, the thing is, by the late 1960s, this is the kind of the context of where did critical race theory come from? Most of the legal gains of the civil rights movement were made. By 1968, most of it was made. By the by the time you get to the 1980s and early 1990s, most of the material gains in terms of at least the legal architecture of the country and most of the institutional architecture of the culture, country and a lot of the sociocultural architecture of the country had already been obtained. The critical race theory grew up explicitly in the space trying to keep the special interest politics that came largely out of Johnson's Great Society program including affirmative action, that were losing public support. So to quote from Critical Race Theory, an introduction right at the beginning of the book, why does Critical Race Theory exist? Where did it come from? Pages four and five, they outline the early origins in their words of Critical Race Theory. They say, Critical Race Theory sprang up in the mid-1970s as a number of lawyers, activists, and legal scholars across the country realized more or less simultaneously that the heady advances of the civil rights era of the 1960s had stalled and in many respects were being rolled back realizing that new theories and strategies were needed to combat the subtler forms of racism that were gaining ground, early writers such as Derek Bell, Alec, Alan Freeman, and Richard Delgado, co-author of this primer, put their minds to the task. So the key point here is that they're documenting a loss of enthusiasm for these special projects. Now, you say, you know, James, you're reading that a little bit cynically. They didn't actually say that. Well, we'll turn to some other sources. I have to read quite at length from One more source, and I think I'm going to convince you that I'm not exaggerating this. It's a very heavy-duty book. It's called Critical Race Theory, the key writings that formed the movement, which is a much harder book to read uh, than, it is an anthology of papers, but it's much harder to read than Critical Race Theory and Introduction, which is a kind of introductory textbook. It was edited by Kimberly Crenshaw, among several others. And by the way, the, the term, the phrase affirmative action appears 192 times in that book, which is 532 pages long. So affirmative action is mentioned 192 times in critical race theory, the key writings that form the movement. Uh, and it's, it's dozens of times in the introduction and I'm going to quote to you from the introduction, which at some point on the podcast, I'd like to read the whole thing, but it's super long and super, it'd be like a six part series. But anyway, this will give you a sense of what I'm talking about. This is a huge wall of text from the first few pages, long quote. I'll try to add some commentary. I'll tell you when the quote is over. I hope I remember to. They write, the laws incorporation of what several authors here call formal equality, that's in quotes, the prohibition against explicit racial exclusion like whites only signs, marks a decidedly progressive movement moment in the U.S. political and social history. However, the fact that civil rights advocates met with some success in the nation's courts and legislatures ought not obscure the central role the American legal order played in the deradicalization of the racial liberation movements. Can you hear that? Ought not obscure the central role the American legal order played in the de-radicalization, that's their problem that they're having with progress, is it deradicalized the racial liberation movements. Along with the suppression of explicit white racism, the widely celebrated aim of civil rights reform, the dominant legal conception of racism as a discrete and identifiable act of prejudice based on skin color placed virtually the entire range of everyday social practices in America social practices developed and maintained throughout the period of formal American apartheid beyond the scope of critical examination or legal remediation. I don't think that's actually true, but they like to say that a lot. It certainly was being remediated, but they say that it went beyond being able to be fixed anymore because of this. This is a critical race theory view. Where do they go next with this? The affirmative action debate, which is discussed in several essays in this volume, provides a vivid example of what we mean. (laughs) Yeah, I bet it does. From its inception, Mainstream legal thinking in the U.S. has been characterized by a curiously constricted understanding of race and power. Within this cramped conception of racial domination, the evil of racism exists when, and only when, one can point to specific, discrete acts of racial discrimination, which is in turn narrowly defined as decision-making based on the irrational and irrelevant attribute of race. Given this essentially negative, indeed dismissive view of racial identity and its social meanings... It was not surprising that mainstream legal thought came to embrace the ideal of colorblindness as the dominant moral compass of social enlightenment about race. Mainstream legal argument regarding race relations typically defended its position by appropriating Dr. King's injunction that a person should be judged, quote, by the content of his character rather than the color of his skin and wedding it to the regnant ideologies of equal opportunity in American meritocracy. Faced with the state of affairs, liberal proponents of affirmative action in legal and policy arenas who had just successfully won the formal adoption of basic anti-discrimination norms soon found themselves in a completely defensive ideological posture. So the people who wanted affirmative action, all of a sudden we have colorblind law, are in the position of having to defend themselves against the fact that it's not colorblind. Whoops, that's not what they wanted. Whoops. So they go on. Affirmative action requires a use of race as a socially significant category of perception and representation, but the deepest elements of mainstream civil rights ideology had come to identify such race consciousness as racism itself, because it is. Indeed, the problem here Was not simply political and strategic. The predominant legal representation of racism as the mere recognition of race matched the personal views of many liberals themselves, creating for them a contradiction in their hearts as well as their words. Liberal anti discrimination. Proponents propose various ways to reconcile this contradiction. They characterize affirmative action as merely exception, and as a merely exceptional remedy for past injustice, a temporary tool to be used only until equal opportunity is achieved, or a default mechanism for reaching discrimination that could not be proved directly. Separate but related liberal defenses of affirmative action hold that its beneficiaries have suffered from, quote, deprived backgrounds that require limited special consideration and the otherwise fully rational and unbiased competition for social goods, or that affirmative action promotes social diversity, in quotes, a value which in the liberal vision is uh, a value which in the liberal vision is independent of, perhaps even at odds with, equality of opportunity or meritocracy. The poverty of the liberal imagination is belied by the very fact that liberal theories of affirmative action are framed in such defensive terms, and so shaped by the the felt need to justify this perceived departure from purportedly objective findings of merit or the lack thereof. Merit is in scare quotes. These apologetic strategies testify that the deeper ways Civil rights reformism has helped to legitimize the very social practices in employment offices and admission departments that were originally targeted for reform. By constructing discrimination as a deviation from otherwise legitimate selection processes, liberal race rhetoric affirms the underlying ideology of just deserts, even as it reluctantly tolerates limited exceptions to meritocratic mythology. So you hear the point from Delgado and Stefanczyk a few pages uh, in this, the, the loss of enthusiasm, the immediately defensive posture. The purpose has something to do, though, with the fact that affirmative action is going to be under threat once we adopted actually colorblind law. Once we finally got to colorblind law, the grift is under threat. So now you see why critical race theory is developing the way that it is, as to protect its grift. So a few pages later, again echoing the loss of enthusiasm point, we read, in any event, however, compelling the liberal uh, the liberal vision of achieving racial justice through legal reform overseen by a sympathetic judiciary may have been in the 60s and early 70s. The breakdown of the national consent, I really just totally botched that. Let me start that again. I got my intonation all wrong. In any event, however, compelling the liberal vision of achieving racial injustice through legal reform overseen by a sympathetic judiciary may have been in the 60s and early 70s got it right that time. The breakdown of the national national consensus for the use of law as an instrument for racial redistribution rendered the vision far less capable of appearing in even merely pragmatic. By the late 70s, traditional civil rights lawyers found themselves fighting and losing rearguard attacks on the limited victories they had only just achieved in the prior decade, particularly with respect to affirmative action and legal requirements for the kind of evidence required to prove illicit discrimination. An increasingly conservative judiciary made it clear that the age of ever-expanding progressive law reform was over. So they want ever-expanding progressive law reform. They want to maintain affirmative action. Uh, this is what their this, this is what their their theory is built to do. Um, straight from a book called Critical Race Theory: The Key Writings That Formed the Movement their introduction, their summary of critical race theory and its history. So what do they say about their history? In our history of the developments of critical race theory, we have highlighted the ways in which our work is a record of our engagement with what we saw as limitations of liberal, leftist, and racialist accounts of racial power in law. The similar limitations of recent liberal defenses of affirmative action, left liberal discourses on globalization, and racialist responses to post-civil rights re-entrenchment, retrenchment, I'm sorry, suggests that critical race theory may provide a new and much needed ways to think about and challenge the contemporary politics of racial domination, affirmative action. And last but not least, from this wonderful book, um, they write, critical race theory is instructive here in that it uncovers the ongoing dynamics of racialized power and its embeddedness in practices and values which have been shorn of any explicit formal manifestations of racism. So no racism here, but there must be racism somewhere. Critical race theory thus provides a basis for understanding affirmative action as something other than racial preference, a notion whose implicit premise is that affirmative action represents a deviation from an otherwise non-racial neutrality. So what we've said here, by the way, is that they conceive of a unlevel racial playing field specifically because affirmative action is the answer to that, to re-level the playing field. They call it equity now, but This is why critical race theory grew the way that it did, and your grift isn't going to work if you allow anybody who wants to, to identify as whatever race, because then they could qualify for the grift. They go on. Critical race theory understands that claims to the contrary notwithstanding, distributions of power and resources, which were racially determined before the advent of affirmative action, would continue to be so if affirmative action is abandoned. I wonder what their goal is. I wonder what their incentive is. Let me just read that sentence again. Where did critical race theory come from, James? Well, in their own words, folks, critical race theory understands that claims to the contrary, notwithstanding distributions of power and resources, which were racially determined before the advent of affirmative action, PS, which affirmative action they believe fixed would continue to be so if affirmative action is abandoned. What is their purpose to defend affirmative action? That's it. They call it equity now. Okay. I don't I mean, we can have the debate. But let's not lie about what's going on. There's your incentive structure right there. That's the, what's why the theory developed the way that it did. So they continue. Our critiques of racial power reveal how certain conceptions of merit function not as a neutral basis for d- distributing resources and opportunity, but rather as a repository of hidden race-specific preferences for those who have the power to determine the meaning and consequences of merit. So somebody gets to, very Foucault, somebody gets to decide what merit means, and those people set up the whole system for their own benefit. That's critical race theory. Why? Because affirmative action, previous sentence. We have shown, they write, that the putatively neutral baseline from which affirmative action is said to represent a deviation is in fact a mechanism for perpetuating the distribution of rights, privileges, and opportunity established under a regime of uncontested white supremacy. Critical race theory recognizes accordingly that a return to the so-called neutral baseline would mean a return to an unjust system of racial power, parentheses by James, in which affirmative action is not there. Finally, critical race theory fully comprehends that the aim of affirmative action is to create enough exceptions to white privilege to make the mythology of equal opportunity seem at least plausible. See? Told you. In fact, a defense of affirmative action premised on critical race theory rather than liberal ambivalence would neither apologize for affirmative action nor assume it to be fully adequate, to be a fully adequate political response to the persistence of white supremacy. So affirmative action isn't just something they want to preserve, it's the first step in a much broader redistribution program. That's their incentive structure. So finally, rather critical race theory supports affirmative action as a limited approach which has achieved a meaningful if modest measure of racial justice. So I think now we can agree. Leftist identity politics for progressive aims continually expanding, lost the heady exciting advances of special interest politics by race blah, 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 affirmative action is at the center of this. The whole thing, this, this is, it is a identity-based grift that exists at the heart of the incentive structure for critical race theory. The people who adapted neo-Marxism and postmodernism into critical race theory were doing so for milking the incentive structure of creating a racial hierarchy in which they, the people that they get to designate get to benefit most. There's your incentive structure. So because it's about racial special interests, you have to have racial protectionism baked into your theory. All the theoretical stuff that I said before can probably be boiled down to exactly that point, cynical as it is. Following this incentive goes one place and one place only. Racial protectionism is an absolutely necessary fact. Thus, you cannot allow transracial identities because those would grant access to money, opportunity, and power that's being set aside for certain people and rationalized as such by theory. So what I mean by that is white people can't become people of color, but especially black because they're being earmarked for special treatment and people of color and especially black people can't act white because what they're doing is trying to grift off of the already uh, evil system as critical race theory has it so that we don't need that radical policy anymore. They said that, remember, the changes that we had in the civil rights movement de radicalized the movement. So you need people to not go be, you need black people to stay not successful because if they're not successful, then you can continue this grift. But if they go and they be successful, then they're actually, according to critical race theory, buying into the white supremacy and grifting off of it. So they're bad people. That explains everything. That's why you can't have transracial identities. We don't even have to talk about the theoretical explanations, which I already covered. So now let's switch to queer theory and gender and the gender incentives. They're very different. So you're going to expect different behavior because the incentives underneath are different. The gender incentives are acceptance uh, the event, acceptance of, of, of who people are, right? You're not being ostracized for being gay. You're not being ostracized for looking different. You're not being ostracized for being a tomboy or whatever. But then that perverts into positive affirmation and even celebration and enablement. The other incentives are the claiming of power through kind of identity politics, similar to what we just saw, and also the incentive structure of uh, enabling and, and uh, facilitating sexual kinks, some of which are actually quite horrifying, like pedophilia. So these incentives ultimately empower all kinds of problematic people, by the way. Positive affirmation, claim of power, unassailable power, and sexual kinks. This is going to empower narcissists borderline personalities, pedophiles, fetishists, perverts, who are all going to be the ones who end up driving the theory, the direction of the theory the hardest. So that's where queer theory is going to go because that's who's going to be able to benefit the most from it. People who are going to want to push in those directions. So I'm not going to go really, I just went more into depth with critical race theory than I am with queer theory. Um, with, I'm not going to cite a bunch of primary literature here. I'm going to try to look into this later, getting into the darker corners, especially the pedophilia and the children grooming. But just to kind of point out briefly, um, you know, I quoted from that paper earlier, queer futurity and childhood innocence beyond the injury of development. So questioning childhood innocence, that's a dark heart. There's another paper, 2018 by Julie Garland. Um, Don't know Julie's pronouns, so we won't assume, uh, in a journal called Childhood, called Interrogating Innocence. Childhood, in scare quotes, as an exclusionary social practice. So we'll dig into stuff like that in the future. We'll talk about all kinds of gross stuff that's going on there, but I'm not going to go into this deeply here. I'm just going to kind of touch on these incentive structures in queer theory in a kind of more superficial way. So incentive structure number one, acceptance that perverts into positive affirmation and frankly, narcissism. So the incentive is on being accepted first, which everybody should be able to relate to. Nobody should be crapped on for who they are. Nobody should be excluded for who they are. Being accepted as gay or gender not conforming or whatever, fine. Acceptance. Some people are gay, get over it. Some people are different, get over it. Right. So that incentive, though, perverts into a desire to feel special by being different or having a unique queer identity and insight into the world. We saw recently there was a video where the person actually is, you know, has like a mustache, but presents as a girl, says that their, um, appearance, um, this was on, I saw this going around on Twitter, uh, confuses cis people and that feeds their ego. There you go. So this begins with acceptance. Let us be us. That's why we're questioning. You could look at your butch lesbians and the radical feminists. This is why we're really questioning gender and its connections to sex and sexuality. I shouldn't be pushed into having to be feminine when I don't want to. We really need to look at the way that, that narratives or ideas about what it means to be manly might produce violence. Let us be us. This is why we're, why we're questioning these categories in the first place. Those are reasonable incentives to begin from, but this progresses into positive acceptance, which is in the addiction literature called enablement. Look how stunning and brave I am for transgressing boundaries in an oppressive oppressive society. Celebrate me. Make me special. I'm special for doing friggin' nothing. This is where I got myself in trouble a long time ago on Peter Boghossian's recommendation, by the way. Nobody knows that. I just took that dive myself Where about gay pride. Gay pride mixes up in this. It's like that word pride means two things. One is positive acceptance and one is unabashedness, and it trades in that ambiguity on purpose. The gay pride movement does, and so that leaves a lot of dangerous room open. There's a big difference between acceptance and positive affirmation, and positive affirmation is not necessarily a good thing sometimes, but not usually. And acceptance, I think, is generally a good thing, Um, but not always. Um, Sometimes there are reasons to enforce taboos and, and norms and boundaries. And the leftists, queer leftists, I mean, queer theory leftists tend not to understand this at all. They tend to completely not understand this. And then kind of naive leftists misunderstand it. But then the thing is, like I said, this incentive of acceptance going into positive affirmation, who's that going to get capitalized upon? Don't be ridiculous. It's going to get capitalized upon by narcissists who positive acceptance and positive celebration is their entire jam. And those people, there's no defenses in theory against that. There's no defenses in queer theory against letting narcissists run the show. So they're going to win everything and they're going to drive the direction of theory. So the incentive structure basically feeds narcissism, which I think we see with this person saying, you know, it feeds my ego to confuse people to be queer good for you. Um, Tear down lots of important and valuable things because it feeds your ego. That's the direction that it will go. Power, the claiming of power, in fact, unassailable power, going trans makes you virtually invincible in our society. So there's an incentive in all of critical social justice theory into falling into a properly othered category because that's a protected class, which by definition is not an equal class. Trans is considered because they've brought up the idea of transphobia and the amount of trans exclusion and trans harm and suicides and so on. It is a super properly, deeply othered category, more so than women, more so than lots of other things. Um... Of course, that's also because there's not a whole lot of patriarchal domination going around anymore, except that some people yell about it, but there really isn't. Uh, There's kind of pretend patriarchal domination that feminists sometimes bring up, and there are some small lingering issues or some that are just down to the differences between men and women that really exist that you're not allowed to to mention. But again, queer theory obliterates the idea of feminism, so it has to just keep going, right? Feminism just loses here. Gender-critical feminism can't fight back because it's accepted social constructivism at its heart. Um, and this, by the way, kind of tangentially is why affirmative action looking programs for women won't be able to compete with queer theory. Um, we tolerate them and the, the, the theorists use them. I say, we, the theorists tolerate women's programs and utilize them when they're useful because they like all of their, you know, interlocking grifts, but they don't have any real theoretical ground to stand on under the critical constructivist approach. Once the queer theorists decide to bang in on that. Which is why you have trans women who are men coming into sports and obliterating people, and you have all these people who have no ability to stop it. And this is why you see uh, you see trans activists just absolutely bullying the crap, sometimes beating up uh, so-called turfs with no theoretical ground to stop it. Um, it's because, well, you know, we'll have women's programs and so on when they're useful. This is why you have have trans. You have, you have men in prison, sometimes for rape, identifying as a woman and getting transferred to women's prisons. What a bad idea that is. This is why. It's because they tolerate women's stuff until they can claim for some other deeper reason that it that that, that upholds this heteronormativity and has to you know attach to, attach to this deeper axis of oppression that woman helps maintain. Total train wreck of a theory. The whole thing was a bad idea from the beginning. But the point is that this is a grasp of power, right? It's to avoid punishment. So now you get to be in your women's prison as a, you get to be in a, in women's sports. I mean, think of the, the horrors that follow from this, the horrors that follow from this. Um, if you're into the idea of abusing kids, man, doors wide open, you can get them to cut their own boobs off. You can get them to cut their own dicks off. You can get them to bombard their bodies with hormones and things that are going to make them medically dependent for the rest of their lives. What if you're just greedy and want people to be medically dependent for the rest of their lives because that's lots of prescription dollars? Ooh, psychopaths, man. It's power here. And who could possibly disagree with such a heavily oppressed minority who's apparently, I mean, quite often so mentally unstable about everything that they're talking constantly that if you don't give me my way, I'm going to commit suicide. Or other people who look like me or act like me or dress like me are going to commit suicide and who have connected virtually everything that they say or do to their identity by having adopted a politically queer identity. This basically is, an, is a route to making people in our current um, clown world invincible. Somebody who, is, who declares themselves trans has declared themselves basically invincible. So you see these people who get themselves in a little bit of trouble. Maybe they kill somebody in a car accident and then they're trans. Or you see them pushing their activism and then they get caught for being kind of a creeper and doing abusive things and the next day they're trans because now they're invincible. And This is why we see people like in these prisons. We see so many abusers adopt this identity. This is why we saw the trans mixed martial arts fighter, Fallon Fox, saying that she loves to break the faces of TERFs, who basically she defines as any woman who steps in the ring to fight her. We see abusers adopt this identity because it confers upon them some status of invincibility. Of course, Fallon Fox is funny because she got her ass kicked later by a woman, and that's kind of funny. But um, because this is said to be based on some internal feeling, like literally, I can have a full beard and change literally nothing about anything that I do dress or anything and just declare myself a woman. And say that my name is Jamie now or something, and you have to just respect me. And if you don't, then you're a bigot of the worst possible kind that's encouraging the suicides of teenagers. It's like giving a superpower to abusers. And of course, what's really going on here is that there's in the kind of uh, psychopathologies that are going to use this kind of a tool. Normal people don't do this. The kind of psychopathologies where this tool is going to get used have a deep and profound vulnerability inside of them that they're projecting over with a need to feel invincible. But the claim of power is is obvious here, and that's really what's going on. And then, of course, the dark heart of queer theory is the kinky sexual stuff, right? Acceptance to narcissism, power to borderline and psychopathic abuse. That's one pathway. And then there's the kinky sexual stuff, which does include pedophilia, but also all kinds of stuff. You see, like, queer identity. You see queer theorists claiming shit like wearing leather is an identity, like being a fetishist of a certain type is an identity. There's no, those aren't identities. Okay. And we, we saw people talk about that recently. This is kinky. Their kink is their identity now. Um, and that's to add extra justifications under, for, or under the above stuff. But the, this kinky aspect of queer theory is one that looks at, looks at sexuality that's why it's not totally tangential, like I said at the beginning. And it grows out of critical sexual critical sexuality studies, which were ultimately rooted in the idea of sexual liberation, which is of course libidinous, very libertine as a matter of fact, and sought to break down most or all barriers around healthy sexuality. And of course, healthy here is going to be said as a word that's oppression. You're defining what is and is not healthy, blah, blah, blah. And I get you, there's a little bit of license if you're a mature adult and you can you can you can you can swing a little bit literally, but you can dress in leather if you want or not, whatever. But these people are not doing this in a healthy way. They want it to be totally anything goes. Is that weird? Who's to say, uh, is that abnormal? Who's to say, uh, and that's, a different thing together. Now, you know, you get this vibe. He doesn't say creepy, weird stuff in Eros and Civilization, but Herbert Marcuse wrote Eros and Civilization in 1955. And he goes on about this kind of sexual liberation line that he claims that the libido, his goal was to marry Marx and Freud in his neo-Marxism. And he, he argues that the libido is repressed in Western capitalist consumers, consumerist societies, and is turned into capitalism that's capitalism-worthy work. That's the Protestant work ethic, and he's all mad about this. And you see that's criticized. The Protestant work ethic was on the list of white supremacy culture that the National African American History and Culture Museum, or whatever it is, from the Smithsonian put out. All the postmodernists, by the way, were in this kinky, creep, uh, creepy stuff. They all signed all of the big ones, plus a lot of other people, signed the petition that went around in the, I think, the 60s or 70s in France, I'd have to look up the date on that again, to end the age of consent laws in France, which were already at a pretty low 15, and they wanted to get rid of those. And of course, we can't ignore that Michel Foucault signed, uh, Jack Derrida did too, but uh, Michel Foucault signed this and he was definitely a pedo. We now know that he was definitely a pedo. So he's rationalizing his own perversion there. And there's also, he wasn't just a pedo. He was BDSM gay kink scene and wanted to expand the potentialities of being. Um, so all of this evolved in queer theory, then or all of queer theory evolved because of the no breaks problem with social constructivism. And it got to the point where basically everything that's a taboo, including childhood, including incest, uh, all of those had to be brought up and so-called critically examined and deconstructed because that, there's no breaks. Every slope in this ideology is slippery. In fact, they're infinitely slippery because anything, it's its, it's like, it's not even, this, the slopes aren't even slippery. It's like the ideology is pushing you down the slope because if not, then you're maintaining bigotry and oppression. So there's like a shoving down this ultra slippery slope. You don't slide down it. They're actually literally shoving people down it as fast as they can. And so, um, Granted, they are reacting. We can look at the historical context and be academic and smart to saying, oh, well, these these taboos and whatever are actually the products of an oppressive Victorian and post-Victorian Christian Protestant society, and they have to be questioned because they go too far. And maybe sometimes, maybe not. Maybe they're too strict, maybe not. But frankly, there is some, you know, it when you see it line and they go, they don't just cross it. They like turbocharge rocket blast across it. And um, some of this is, like I said, we have to always keep this in mind. Some of this is because of absolute perverts and actually dangerous people. But a lot of it is just getting rationalized and laundered. Through so-called academic critique, where these kind of bourgeois disconnected academics are unaware of their unintended consequences and just unable to fathom that, you know, normal people, when subjected to utter nonsense, are going to have utter nonsense happening. But that attraction of perverts, when they can hide under that academic cloak, they're going to be really successful. So um, who, who does this stuff attract? Well, the gender and sex dimension, which is separate from the sexuality dimension, is going to attract people who feel as though you know queer theory helps them resolve certain problems that they experience personally sometimes in benign ways like identity issues of various types like i don't feel like i should have to present as feminine or whatever and these people will work very hard to justify and develop a theory again in that kind of academic often self-interested but clueless unintended consequences way that benefits their circumstances without being aware of the greater damage But it's also going to attract, and this is just in the gender and sex dimension, people with particular kinks like autogynephilia, which you're not allowed to mention, which is being sexually aroused by the idea of picturing yourself, if you're a man, as literally being a woman. It's an actual sexual kink. It's also going to attract vulnerable young people, especially ones who have various you know issues that they haven't resolved or maybe especially they might just be gay and they aren't quite sure what that means as they're going from childhood in that's uh, different from the other kids and transitioning into adolescence that's causing them senses of dysphoria but this means it's also going to attract the creeps who can prey upon these vulnerable people and uh, children and it creates in that sense a disaster that's much worse than any of the sex scandals in the catholic church you have this new religion of wokery with queer theory as one of its domains that literally attracts and justifies the behavior of the worst of the worst and literally justifies the grooming like yeah i get it like priests and bishops doing things is not good and hiding it up and covering it with the church and whatever. And they're using the altar boy thing. I get it. Like not good. But here we're talking about something that literally the ideology demands the grooming of vulnerable young people and bringing them in. We get into the sexuality dimension, of course, it's going to attract kinksters and it's going to attract pedos. It's going to attract all kinds of people who are really opposed to the idea that there are any boundaries or taboos in sexuality. We had Judith Butler, for example, questioning the taboos of incest. I don't think she wanted to commit incest. I just think that she had clueless uh, clueless, um, unintended consequences, academic mind. Maybe she did, but I doubt it. Um, you've seen Similar things, you know, we see the pedophilia and the BDSM with with Michel Foucault going forward, questioning the innocence of childhood. I just read the titles of two papers that are questioning the innocence of, in scare quotes, childhood. Um, this is, you know, whatever Judith Butler was in terms of her academic or creepy standing, creepers are going to come in and they're the ones are really going to push this. They're going to see a huge opportunity here. And again, this is where you, I've talked about it before. Psychopathy is going to dictate the direction of these theories. And these theories are rationalizations of particular uh, psychopathologies that are going to then take command of them. And they're going to use people, maybe like Judith Butler, to rationalize and launder those ideas. This is what I've been trying to say for months now. And this is what you see in Queer theory. So these sorts of incentives, then acceptance that bends into narcissism, power and invincibility through identity, and the justification of an access to kinks and being kinky and violating all kinds of sexual uh, taboos, um, they don't lead to identity protectionism. In fact, they lead to the opposite. The incentive structures in critical race theory lead to identity protectionism for affirmative action, which is at the heart of their whole project. The incentives in queer theory point the opposite direction. They need as many people as possible to be non-conforming for greater amounts of acceptance. They need as many people as possible. Since trans is actually an extraordinarily small phenomenon, they need more people to do it so that they can justify that it's not just people abusing power. There needs to be just enough of it to look like there's actual justification for what they're doing. And as far as the kinky stuff goes, We're getting into anything goes, the more the merrier at the orgy, as I said earlier. So what you lead to in queer theory, the incentives lead to the the deconstruction of identity, because that's how you get to anything goes. That's how you get to the kinds of things that I was just describing that these incentive structures lead to. There is no affirmative action in queer theory. Goals are narcissistic acceptance, the justification of power grabs that require enough people to make it seem plausible and kinky fetishists who want to break down all sexual boundaries so they can have an anything-goes sexual society. So being queer, uh, non-conforming, etc. cetera, um, including perhaps especially transgender identities, facilitate this set of incentives. So it's not just allowed under queer theory to be transgender, it's encouraged. So when we get to the incentive level, it's actually kind of clear why critical race theory developed to bar transracial identities, whereas queer theory developed to encourage transgender identities. So hopefully this helps you understand the complicated nature of why you can be transgender under critical social justice theory, but you cannot be transracial. There was a lot going on theoretically. I think I made the case clearly enough. There was a lot going on at a level of incentive structures. To summarize, here are the basic points. The most powerful system of evil, whatever that is, of oppressive power, is always going to win because its oppression becomes primary, so that's why white supremacy, that's going to be white supremacy with race, that's what critical race theory is concerned with, which is said to be anti-black in particular, and that's cis-heteronormativity with gender, sex, and sexuality, so it's going to bulldoze feminism. You're always allowed to lean into the oppressed other, but you can only do so authentically as theory holds authenticity. In other words, in a way that recognizes and upholds the power structure that it's talking about. So that means you can be your race politically, but you can't be some other race. Your race can't change, no transracial. That means that you can be queer in some way, but you can't remain normative. So your sex, gender, and sexuality can and probably should change. So theory supports these apparently divergent behaviors for one single reason, which is that you can lean into the oppressed other according to what theory considers authentic. And what theory considers authentic is leaning into the maximally oppressed other category as a means of breaking down one way or another, as we talked about with the two different approaches at the beginning, the power structure at its heart Not to be ignored, though, is that the incentives are arranged so that they align with this theory, and this is not coincidental. Race has the incentive structures of forming identity political blocks, including for the purposes of establishing affirmative action and affirmative action, or in other words, special interest identity politics with an actual grift attached to them as its main motivation. Queer theory, however, Approaches the issue through acceptance that changes into celebration and enablement that perverts into narcissism, the seizing of power for invincibility of people who are able and willing to abuse that, which will be primarily borderline and cluster B and psychopathic people, and then the kink perversion where people who are like anything goes want to maximize the field of anything goes. And by breaking people, young people especially, and psychologically vulnerable people down psychologically even further in each of their respective directions, you can understand lots of the theories. Critical race theory wants to keep minorities feeling oppressed and victimized, and queer theory wants psychologically Uh, vulnerable people to feel more and more psychologically vulnerable until they deconstruct their identities entirely consistent with upholding these incentives. So now you should understand why you can be transgender and not transracial. It's a long, complicated topic. I'm sorry it took so long to discuss, but it really does. But I'm going to finally draw out this last bit that's so important. Uh, The link between this kind of what we might call the law, this kind of behavior, these developments of theory, and what might be called the law of intolerance or better, the law of psychopathy. That tells you where a theory with no brakes on it, like critical race theory or critical social justice theory or theory period, capital T theory, like we called it in cynical theories, where it's going to go over time. It's going to be driven by the lunatics and grifters who can game it the most. So within critical race theory, race hustlers are going to push things toward racism racial strife, even a race war, because that's what benefits the most. The more racism, the more racial strife, the more racial victimization, the more racial division, the more they can keep pushing their hustle, the more they can keep grifting off their hustle. And that's what they're going to try to do. If there is no racism, if we have a completely race egalitarian society, affirmative action literally makes no sense. If you are actually making money off of keeping racism on life support, as Thomas Sowell put it, and you get rid of racism, if you actually kill it, you're not making money anymore. So, the psychopaths, and I'm not talking about all critical race theorists, in fact, there's probably a somewhat of a minority of them, probably a little fewer than 20, but maybe fewer, in fact, than uh, 15% of them are going to be in this kind of hustler category, are going to be strongly incentivized to push the theory in that direction. And because they're very intolerant, and they're going to be very avant-garde, and they're going to be also very strategic, they're probably going to win and get lots of the other critical race theorists to launder and support those ideas. As far as Within queer theory, or really kind of in both, narcissists will push things toward their own glorification at all costs because that's what benefits the most. When we get more deeply into the queer theory stuff, abusers, cluster B types, and, and, and kind of like uh, dangerous kinksters, I guess as a way, well, pedophiles, for example, will push things to their own unassailable power no matter what because that benefits them the most. And they might actually enjoy it when they're cluster B or borderline or psychopathic. They might actually just enjoy seizing power and bullying people with it. Perverts will push things the most toward their own satisfaction of their own perversions, and they'll do so at any cost if they're if they're psychologically abnormal enough, because that's what benefits them the most. And the thing is, that these theories and like doesn't this isn't that what this looks like is what's happening. These theories facilitate that. In fact, these theories I claim grew out of that. They. Maybe they started with the best of intentions in some cases, but they were quickly going to be co-opted because of their utility to these exact types of pathology. So when I said previously at the end of last year that we're talking about psychopathy and the origins of totalitarianism, this podcast intended to start out just to be an explanation for why you can be transgender under critical social justice theory, but you cannot be transracial. And it ends up actually including or being an explanation for why society is being ripped apart the way that it is, which is to say that it is a defense of my argument that I made at the end of last year, that ideologies like critical social justice or liberationism or whatever else, so much of this theoretical and ideological evil are ultimately driven by psychopathy, by psychopaths who know how to utilize this theory to their own benefit for the benefit of the psychopaths everyone else, because the people driving the car are in fact psychopaths, will prove expendable. Or in the words of Antifa, liberals get the bullet too. And isn't that exactly what's happening?